All right, hey, everybody, this is Scoot, and uh, this is going to be an interesting tale of the tape. I'm going to have to really, uh, I don't know, it'll be interesting. So uh, this is a Game of Thrones tale of the tape because uh, I haven't prepped it for the new season by rewatching anything. And because it's the close of the season, I was wondering if I could do in, in like a 50-minute span, like a train, go through all the seasons of what I remember, like a... Uh, and see what comes out of that, because that should be pretty sleepy, uh, based on my memory alone, unless I get really, like, so right now I haven't looked anything up, but, but at some point I could pause it and say, first off, how many seasons have there been? I, I'm guessing six so far, but it could be seven or it could be five. So what we'll do is we'll go through and kind of look at, uh, yeah, we'll just kind of go through things and meander. It'll be meandering recall of uh, what what happened in, in, in over the history of the show and i guess it gives me about eight minutes a season depending on how many seasons there are though it could be between seasons uh three four five and six. Oh boy so season one was of course the intro okay a couple more things i guess so one is like one of the nice things about game of thrones is that despite all the complexities of uh everything and the pomp and circumstance and the drama and the action it really is just these human stories and a lot of it is like a family uh, and even the little kids that live inside us based at least in my opinion and that it is a show about family dynamics which is actually how the first season starts off so i guess that is a good transition because it does start off, uh, I believe, first off with the dynamics of two different families. So episode one, we meet the Starks. No, no, three. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Three different families. And I guess the greater political families. But so, yeah, so season one starts off, we meet the Starks. And again, I don't know. I know how the kind of the beginning and towards the end of the show I don't really know of the of the season, but so it starts off. We meet the Starks, um, and we meet uh, who's a bit uh, ba- um, uh, what's his name, Papa Stark. If you're a stickler for Game of Thrones, you're going to be in, in for it. Uh, and you know, eventually, I remember it. We meet actually even in the teaser. We meet Benjen, I think, uh, which doesn't pay off again until recently. And I remember reading that in the book. Uh, but so, okay, so we we see Benjen, then the show opens, then we meet the Stark family, maybe. And Ned Stark, actually, thank you, thank goodness I remembered that. Uh, Caitlin and Ned, oh boy, the Stark family. They live in the north, Winterfell. Ned lives by code, we learn that. We learn he's a kind father. Uh, we learn that there's a family dynamics. We learn that John is a, a half son or whatever you call it is like, uh, I mean, they have other words for it, but he's a snow and we see the, the, the dynamics between who do we got in there? We got a uh, little Ricky, Ricard, Rickard, uh, the three eyed Raven, Bran, who, you know, one day, but you know, Arya, Sansa. The dude that was king, I forget his name. I want to call him Richard. Uh, maybe he played King King Richard at some point. I'll eventually remember his name. John Snow and old uh, uh, 
Leonard, the forgotten Stark that was like that you say. Wasn't there one more Stark son? Yeah, Leonard. Everybody forgets about Leonard. Rickard, it was cute, the cute one. You know, Bran was the one where he said, there's something more to Bran than I know. So those were the Stark kids, I believe. And the other kid, the kid, he was king, king in the north. That's, that's not season, that's season two. So we've learned the family dynamics. They get their uh, puppies. And we, you know, we see Caitlin and Ned. Can there's something you know strained there? Maybe we get some hints back to the the, the past. I, I don't know. So we meet the Starks. Eventually, also in the beginning of the season. I don't know about the episodes, but uh, then we meet the um, what is their last name? Baratheons. Uh, Robert. We we find out Robert Baratheon's king. He's coming to see Ned to make Ned his hand. We find out his hand has gone to the big farm. We meet Cersei. We meet, uh, uh, I don't know if we meet Tom and, and uh, Tom and sister. That's a good question. Great question. I don't know. Jamie, Lannister, and uh, Joffrey. We definitely meet Joffrey. And we we start to get a sense of their dynamics early in the season. We get uh, Cersei's and Robert's. Uh, dynamics and that Robert's a bit of a like a not good at governing good at winning governance but not good at governing we get backstory about this three tridents or whatever the heck it was and we learn about Cersei and Jamie then Bran you know to take but it takes a spill we start to learn these other characters uh, the hound Ellen Payne uh so, so we just get some dynamics. We get the Joffs, not the, not that great. Uh, so, so we start to see that sort of strain, and then they head towards. Uh, some of them head towards uh, King's Landing with King Robert. Now, meanwhile, at some point, we meet the Khaleesi, the future Khaleesi, uh, who's like like we start to learn that she's one of the Targaryens. Or we meet her brother, who's briefly like a, like cuts a jib like Killian Murphy a little bit, and he's not likable either. Uh, also, we meet other characters like all the other characters, like our good friend Varys. Uh, we meet Tyrion. You know, we start to get to know the land, the other Lannisters. Wow, this is yeah, this is more complicated than I thought. Uh, so like, uh, but we also so we meet Khaleesi. And her brother, the Targaryens. Believe me, I don't know if I'll remember any of that. Then we meet uh, their their sponsor, some rich dude who's definitely I don't have any idea. I probably will remember it at some point. And that you know that uh, Khaleesi's brother has grand plans of uh, becoming returning as a triumphant Targaryen. And then we meet Khal Drogo. I'll just run through Khaleesi season, I guess, because uh, and we're here. Then we call Drogo and Khaleesi marry with her brother's intention of using that to like kind of unify and to get to Khal Drogo's armies. Uh, but he doesn't appreciate how like uh, he likes the Khaleesi, uh, but not uh, her brother. So he says, uh, you know, you're out. Uh, she's a leader. You're not. She's kind. You're not. 
And I don't know if it was like, like, uh, again, like, I guess the Khaleesi story, let's just say that it was season one. Cause I don't know if, uh, she becomes a leader in season one or season two, to be honest with you. Again, maybe I could just follow Khaleesi's journey right now and then go back to the Starks and the, the like when I get mixed up. So then the Khaleesi and Kyle Drogo, they start to get to know each other. They end up, they like each other. Uh, like he, he's a horse Lord or the Lord of the, all the horses. Uh, and we do learn that she still shares this ambition of saying, well, maybe we do need to go across the, um, the sea and to take back my kingdom. That's rightfully mine. Uh, we also learn that not everybody, like there's challengers to the Khal Drogo's throne. And at some point, like something happens and then, uh, everything's kind of thrown into disarray because he goes to visit the big farm uh, Khaleesi tries out some other options to keep him from the big farm. Then we learn that she's a mother of dragons. Uh, I don't know if that's like she goes and, and, uh, she, uh, she's, she's like the Phoenix with the two dra- baby dragons. And that kind of seems to solidify her leadership for the most part. There's still, uh, uh, cause Cal Drogo only, uh, uh, has his portion of his people. So at some point in this few, oh, we also meet Sir Jorah. And then eventually as things move on, we meet, uh, whoever that smooth dude is, Dario Naharis or whatever. So yeah, then the Khaleesi over those first couple seasons, uh, she's not the Khaleesi yet. Uh, though I guess at some point she does become a Khaleesi. We get to know Sir Jorah, who's in, you know, seriously imperfect, uh, Dario Naharis or whatever his name is. And then we see the Khaleesi start, uh, I don't know exactly the order of things, because uh, she has to deal with the rest of the horse lords. Uh, that might be in the, the Lord of the Rings, though, but uh, she does, where she says, hey, like, I'm your leader. And they say, well, we don't know. And she says, no, no, as a matter of fact, I am. And she pulls a smooth switcheroo on them. But I think earlier on, uh, huh, I wonder what the order is where she starts freeing. I guess it would have been before, but I'm picturing the newer Dario Naharis uh, dealing with Sir Joro, like with the horse lords. But I don't know. She goes to meet with all the horse lords. They say, you're not the, you're the boss of us. She says, as a matter of fact, I am uh, Misa, mother of all people. And then she solidifies her leadership there. Let's just say that's what happened. Then the Khaleesi moves on to start freeing people uh, under the rule of not working by choice. Uh, first, uh, she uh, she meets the great, you know, the interpreter, uh, uh, and then she starts the, the unsullied. Then she starts freeing people and dealing with the people that wouldn't keep them free. And they don't like that change. So, so that's a couple of seasons of her going through these like ups and downs of like, uh, it, it gets not that difference in Robert trying to lead and trying to take over things. And at some point over that time, Sir Jorah, Sir Jorah gets fired. The Khaleesi really like, even though she has some ups and downs, she really solidifies her leadership eventually both by heart and by thorn or whatever you want to say. She, she has to do, you know, keep both in balance. 
And she also picks up some new, she's Dario Naharis, who, you know, gets it. They say, well, you look different. He says, yeah, well, I'm more handsome now. And I say, well, maybe, I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, I guess you are. You're less crafty, more handsome. Uh, Tyrion comes to work with her. Varys becomes, becomes a part of her crew. I guess, yeah, at some point Varys joins up. I wonder, like, uh. And, and so those are all delightful parts of seasons, uh, and building towards this idea that eventually she's going to go back and, and uh, take things over. Like so, yeah. If, if, like uh, we won't have time to follow Tyrion or Varys' story anyway. I don't think, but they get these new starts with the Khaleesi, and eventually, like uh, at the beginning of the previous season. Or the end of the season before, she says, let's go, let's get some ships. Uh, I forgot how she got the ships. Uh, but she says, let's get some ships, let's go across the sea, and let's start taking things over. Especially she hears about how the leadership's going over there. So she takes over, they go across the sea, and then last season, or two se- over the past two seasons, I don't know which ones, which she comes, she, does, she deals with the... Uh, uh, the current leadership, which we'll get to in uh, wherever that place is called, Westeros, uh, and she has her ups and downs, you know, learning, like, uh, l- you know, learning to deal with that stuff. Eventually breaks out her uh, her, her dear dragons, and she's dealing with that stuff. But then also she gets called to the north because they say, well, there's a bigger thing to deal with uh, other than just... Uh, like, that's kind of how the last season closes. It's like, are you going to deal with the humans or are you going to deal with this other stuff in the north? Uh, and eventually, as the season closes, she goes to the north. Uh, her and Jon Snow, as we know, kind of solidify their pact. You say, wait a second, are you two, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, they, we also see a dragon go to the big farm in the sky. I think that was as the season closed. Uh, so we see that, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. So I guess that's the Khaleesi's, a uh, little bit of the Khaleesi's story. And what what is her name, though? Khaleesi, Daenerys Targaryen. So excuse me. Yeah, so, but I just call her Khaleesi because that's how, the, you know, I would like to keep it professional. Okay, so let's go back to the Starks, because they had a quite the journey, and it'll probably overlap a lot with, uh, who are those other people, the Bar- before, you know, Baratheons, or, uh, uh, what's the father's name, what's their, their family name, the dude, uh, Charles Dance, that's his, uh, the actor's name, oh, Lannisters, okay, so, okay, so season one, they all go, Robert and Ned, in most of the families, but not the entire families, go back uh, to King's Landing. That's like they're Washington, D.C. And that's supposed to be working with Robert. Meanwhile, we know there's all these machinations going on. Game of Thrones, uh, you win or you go to the big farm. And we see that Circe uh, kind of has other things in mind. Robert's not the best uh, partner anyway or leader. Uh, also, so then, uh, Robert goes to big farm and then Ned says, oh boy, this isn't going to be good for me. Uh, because Ned's like, I live by a code, you know, truth before all things. Uh, 
So he's trying to figure out what the Game of Thrones is, but by the time he figures it out, he next thing you know, Baylor, he's in the big farm. Uh, faster than you can say Baylor. Now, if my memory serves, uh, 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 who Sansa and Arya went with uh, Ned, and we learned it during that trip that uh, Joffrey's J U R K. Uh, but that Sansa kind of was, at least initially, kind of was, had this romantic notion about uh, being kings and queens and stuff, uh, as kids do. And so then at the end of that season, we learned Sansa's going to stay with the Lannisters. And Arya t- hits the road. She actually heads, uh, she just, she, she's heading to join um, Night's Watch. Uh, and she also makes a friend who she helps. But I think that's in the second season. Uh, so season one closes. Uh, oh, Jon Snow's gone to join the Night's Watch in the North at some point, too, in season one. Uh, so I think here's what you got. Like, you got Jon Snow up ahead of the King's Watch, Night's Watch, you're correct. Uh, Caitlin, Rickon, Bran, and the oldest brother, whose name, of course, I can't remember, uh, in King's Land or uh, in Winterfell, maybe. I guess he's like the head of Winter, like him and his mom are kind of running things. Actually, at some point, the mom also, no, the mom, I think she went and then she bailed maybe right before, and she headed back to where she grew up with Tyrion. Yeah, she took Tyrion with her, or no, they accidentally just ran into each other at a, uh, an inn. I think that's season two. So at the end of season one, Arya's like with a crew of people going to the uh, Night's Watch. John's at the Night's Watch getting trained. Uh, Bran and Rickon are at home. Caitlin's traveling. Ned's in the big farm. And uh, Sansa's with the Lannisters. And so then season two... I wish I could remember that guy's name, the, the oldest uh, Stark. Uh, Ro- oh, I almost had it. It's not Robert Stark, though. King, King whatever. The King in the North, they call him, for a little while. So they start up. Uh, so he says, I'm going to lead my people in the North against the Lannisters uh, because they, you know, usurped things or whatever. Uh, meanwhile, Caitlin's going back to her hometown to try to get her sister to join her son, and, like, like I think, uh, and Tyrion has to deal with all that. Uh, Arya's having her own adventures uh, with uh, initially all these kids joining. Then they join this, like, uh, whatever it's called, I forget, uh, Brotherhood Without Banners. But that's not until, uh, that's like, I think the Brotherhood Without Banners was originally Ned Stark's he sent them out to deal with the, maybe the mountain and the hound or something. I don't know. But I think like uh, like season two is like the War of the Three Kings or something it's called. So like basically Robert's brother, Stannis Baratheon, and his like, uh, oh, there's like a lot of other interesting stuff I'm realizing. Uh, is this when we have Loras, right? Uh, is he a Baratheon? He can't be a Baratheon. Uh, but whatever we learn, um, oh no, he, is he, he's from, uh, Highgarden, right? What's their names? Uh, totally forgot about them. 
Uh, but so season two is like Stannis uh, Baratheon wants his brothers. He says, I'm the king because I was like the Baratheon before, you know, I'm older than my brother or something. I also think there's a third Baratheon. Yeah, there is. Oh, for a little while. Yeah, that's right. He's in a relationship with Loris. Uh, and I forget his name, though. And he was actually seemed like he was going to be a good king. And uh, he doesn't like so. And then Ned's son is like busy taking over the north. Two Baratheons are trying to become king or saying they're king. And uh, what, like, I guess they make uh, Joffrey king. Uh, Joffrey does become king or leader at some point. Uh, those Cersei's queen regent on off most of the time. And kind of calling the shots. Uh, oh, no, at first it's Charles Dance, uh, who's, uh, what's his name, Lannister, Big Boss Lannister. So, anyway, they, first they have to deal with the oldest Stark, whatever his friggin' name is. And I don't know if this is season two or season three. Maybe it spans three se- two seasons, uh, all this stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. So, like, it looks like they're winning, then they're not winning. Eventually, Caitlin makes it back uh, to join her son. Jon Snow's, like, learning the ropes up at uh, Winterfell, or wherever that's called, the Wall, Ice Reach, or whatever the heck, all those places up there. Uh, Sansa's trying to make the best of what she can, which includes different, like, uh, if like uh, thinking she's going to marry one person, you're getting told what to do. Then another person. Then initially, like she's going to marry Joffrey. Uh, getting told to get her brother in line. Meanwhile, Arya she has an adventure, and she learns from this other dude about uh, like she gets stuck dealing with Charles Dance for a little while at uh, wherever the um, mountains house was. Uh, and we kind of see that she's like, uh, like uh, against him. Then she joins. Then she says, uh, at the end of season three, I think maybe it's season two. Uh, she's met this cool dude. Uh, oh gosh, I forgot his name too. Again, I'm just winging this. And again, this is why I make a sleep podcast. My brain doesn't exactly record things in order or in a sensible way. But so she heads to uh, Bravos eventually. Because she had originally learned uh, fencing from a Bravosi. Then she meets this uh, mysterious dude who's one of the faceless people. And because he she owe, he owes her, like she he gives her a coin to go there. So, yeah, I don't know. So then, it, but at the same time, when that closes out, or as that's about to close out, uh, uh, we also find out that... Uh, I think this is the end of season three. Caitlin, what's the king's name? King, uh, my brother, Stark. Uh, I don't know. Whatever the oldest Stark was with the beard. Uh, he's a handsome guy, but uh, he's he had, like like made some political decisions that weren't so great. And so eventually they they need this one bridge that this one old troll runs. Uh, and instead of sharing the bridge and his people with them, he sends Caitlin and uh, uh, the king, 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 uh, king, of the, the king in the north, we'll say, and also also his new bride, 
they all go to the big farm. This is actually, I think Ari finds out about this. And then she, yeah, and I guess like she's with the hound. At some point she hooks up with the hound. And then she says, "What? The, forget this whole thing. Uh, and then huh, maybe this is three and four, because then also at the same time, uh, it gets a little bit more stretched out. So that's kind of Arya's journey a little bit. Then Sansa, she was stuck in the north. So basically, in the in the uh, King's Landing, you got Cersei and Joffrey trying to run things with their their advisors and their dad. And then they're also not that nice to Sansa. Sansa's supposed to get married to Joffrey. Then she's supposed to get married to Loras. Uh, then Joffrey is supposed to marry. Who does he marry? Like, because his wedding is like this big deal. Oh, he's marrying Loris' sister, I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, um, again, another character's name escapes me. Uh, and oh, and also at the same time, Jon Snow goes into the North uh, and meets the Northern people, who were uh, like uh, totally being like uh, said they weren't that great, and it turns out they are. Uh, so then whatever they're defending King's Landing, they get, they take out one of the, they send one of uh, the Baratheons to big farm using some undercover method. Uh, I think Stannis does that. Then Stannis tries to take King's Landing. He fails. And then, yeah, this is definitely sleepy stuff because, uh, so then, uh, Joffrey goes to marry, uh, one of the people from Highgarden. They're not Targaryens, uh, Loris, and hmm, good, these are good questions. And but, but so then Joffrey visits Big Farm. Uh, we actually get to spend some cool time with the, the uh, people from Sunspear uh, because uh, everybody's saying at some point uh, Tyr- Tyrion gets in trouble for one thing, and I think he's like, in trouble for another thing. And, uh, eventually Tyrion gets out of trouble, uh, because of the dude from Sunspear, uh, who's one of the coolest, but, uh, I don't know his character's name. I know the actor's name, but, uh, but so, yeah, that's Tyrion, we kind of followed Tyrion's journey. Uh, but so Cersei, so Joff goes to the big farm. Uh, Cersei's not happy about it. She doesn't even know who's behind it. Uh, then she tries to say, she puts uh, Tom in charge. Uh, while all that's happening, it, it, uh, Sansa gets out of there at some point. And then she ends up, uh, at some point she, she like crosses paths with Brienne, Brienne of Tarth, uh, who had promised her mother she would look after her daughters. And bring them to the, her aunts, uh, I, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, Brienne of Tarth eventually brings Sansa to her aunts. Her aunts, like, uh, not that great. Uh, but that's where Sansa meets Baelish. Uh, also, that's where Arya the Hound and Brienne of Tarth all cross paths. I think this was before Arya broke out. Uh, like, this must have been afterwards where Arya heads to Bravos. Uh, speaking of Arya, so she goes to Bravos. I think this is probably season four. 
in season five, and she studies at the House of Black and White to become a um, faceless person. And she's kind of torn as she's learning between, like, uh, becoming an expert at this uh, uh, stuff and losing all semblance of her individuality because they're kind of like a collective collective being type group. And there's a lot of mythology there, but uh, eventually Arya figures out, this isn't for me. Uh, or is it? I guess I still didn't understand that. Uh, but she learns a lot of the skills, but I don't think she's 100% down to just uh, to have her identity. She still identifies as Stark. Uh, so then a cool thing in like season five or season six, Arya goes back to that, uh, uh, the bridge and the troll it deals with the troll at the bridge, uh, on behalf of her brother and her mom. And then eventually makes her way back to Winterfell. Now Sansa, oh boy, Sansa half. So she had to go from Joffrey, uh, to thinking like, uh, she hung out with Loras, uh, but then uh, somehow they they got her out of uh, they got her out of because Cersei was kind of keeping her as like well I ha- kind of have you as a bargaining chip. Uh, so eventually she got out. Then she had to deal with her aunt. I think. No, no, no. Is that first or second? I guess that's. Huh. When was that? Uh, that's a good question. I'm I'm a little mixed up, but. Uh, some point she deals with her aunt. She deals with Baelish. Uh, I think before that, she. Uh, so what happened to her when she got away first? Like maybe she went back to Winterfell, and is that right? And then eventually the the um, Boltons took over, and she had to deal with Bruce Bolton. Now, poor, poor um, the other. Uh, he's not a Baratheon, is he? Uh, uh, we, I guess we don't have time for every character, but so uh, Sansa ends up having to be married to Bruce, uh, not Bruce, but Ramsay Bolton, who's the worst person. I'm trying to think of many worse people on the show. At least Cersei has some redeeming qualities. Ramsay's one of those characters who's just uh, not uh, redeeming. But so, what happens? So eventually, um. I don't know. I'm trying to think of Sansa's journey because she does. Uh, so she deals. She 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 has to be married to Ramsay. She keeps thinking that the people in the north are loyal. I think she gets out with Brienne of Tarth. Uh, would that be when she goes back to her aunt's place? Uh, that kind of makes sense. Uh, and then meets up with Baelish. Uh, maybe that's how everything happened. I don't know exactly. And eventually she comes back with Baelish's army at the same time. Uh, let's go into Jon Snow. So is that right? Jon Snow in charge of that? I guess, yeah. So Jon Snow's trying to deal with everything in the north. Then he meets up with Stannis Baratheon after he meets up with the northern people. And I don't even know what, like, uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm a bit lost. Like, Stannis, he, he like, uh, I think he tried to recruit the northern people to go to King's Landing. Maybe not. Uh, but Stannis ends up at like, uh, so at some point, he, I thought he forged a pack with Jon Snow. Maybe he didn't, though. I don't know. And, uh, no, he did. So I'm trying to think of how Brian Tarth got involved because uh, uh, eventually 
you know, how is Brianna Tarth in there? Because she ends up seeing Stannis. Uh, but Stannis ends up, like, uh, deal, like going, like, uh, helping try to take the North back. Does this sound correct? Uh, with Jon Snow and some of the Northern people. And it doesn't work well for Stannis. Then Jon Snow's in charge. And maybe with some of the other Northern people. I don't know. But eventually Jon Snow tries to take Winterfell back. Uh, uh, from the Boltons, uh, and uh, then uh, what comes in and saves the day is the Sansa with Baelish's army. Sansa comes in and saves the day. Now, maybe that was a message she sent out. I don't know if she was still stuck there, uh, but I think I could see her on a horseback. Like, uh, But whatever, they take back the north, uh, Jon Snow and Sansa. And that's how, like, a season closes, because then eventually Arya joins up with them. And then I think last season was spent with, like, John. Oh, oh, Bran, you're right. So then Bran, uh, so then Bran at some point, uh, they have to get out of Winterfell when they lose Winterfell. So Bran, Rickon, uh, they sneak out, uh, and eventually Bran realizes they've got to head north, uh, to, uh, like, cause he's a three eyed raven. He keeps having these dreams. I, I, I don't know if this is accurate, but, uh, so eventually they head north and Bran actually becomes a three eyed raven. Like, oh, so raven. He's a, th- oh, so raven, three eyed raven. Uh, but so eventually we realize that, uh, what do we realize? So eventually they get the Winterfell back, uh, and then Arya comes from her adventures. Oh, the Three-Eyed Raven. So Bran goes north, uh, becomes a Three-Eyed Raven, which gives him powers. And also he realizes there's trouble in the north, too. And so he comes back uh, uh, to Winterfell. And, uh, like, they're all trying to figure out how to um, protect it. They say, well, there's this coming from the north with this supernatural stuff. Uh isn't that more important than our infighting? And then it's kind of last season. It's like all of the Starks like trying to come together again. The, the family, the remnants of the family, I guess, uh, try to like come together to protect all of uh, Westerosian humanity uh, from this oncoming supernatural threat. Uh, and uniting people and working together, getting Khaleesi on board. Trying to convince uh, Cersei and them, and leading towards this season where it looks like, oh boy, those odds are stacked against human- Westerosian humanity. And they kind of collect- catches up where Khaleesi was. Like, so Khaleesi's got uh, Varys. Uh, there's also a Red Woman comes in and out. I'm not sure about that. Um, there's Missande, who's the interpreter. Who's my, you know, that's the character that, uh, that makes my heart flutter. But there's also Missandra, I think, the red woman. And there's that's another kind of supernatural. And it's trying to tell who, where they're at is really confusing. Uh, but some, so, so at this point, it looks like Khaleesi is joined with Jon Snow to try to protect the North. Uh, is where we kind of left off. Is then back in King's Landing, Cersei has been through a lot of political Game of Thrones. So she's been playing the Game of Thrones. She says, that's the title of the show. I don't know what everybody says. It's not Game of Dragons. 
It's not Game of Walkers. Uh, it's not Game of Freedom. It's Game of Thrones. Uh, me, me and Sanus are really the only ones that get this. Uh, so she's actually been playing the Game of Thrones the whole time. I, mean, I wouldn't play with her, by, by the way. Because then uh, if uh, Cersei's son becomes, uh, like, uh, Tommen becomes king. And Tommen marries uh, whoever the people are from Highgarden, whose names I can't remember. Uh, then in, in like, uh, two seasons ago, maybe this religious movement crops up. Uh, Tommen, charismatic kind of religious movement. Which threat is another Game of Thrones? You say, well, it's not just in the throne. That's a throne, too. Which also becomes, like, that was the season before last, I think, because that seems to threaten Cersei's power. And so towards the end of that season, Cersei pushes all her chips in on Game of Thrones. She says it's the name. Again, the game of the show isn't Game of Parents. Uh, it's not Game of Mom. It's not a game of fair. It's Game of Thrones. And that's how that season ends. She says to Tom and his new wife, the charismatic religious movement, and they play by their own rules, too. She says to them, uh, well, I think it backfired on her. I think she tried to use that religious movement, but she's got a lot of crafty people working for her, too. But she says this is Game of Thrones, pushes all her chips in again. And as the season, last season progressed, at least initially, she was in the throne. Uh, she had a new, she had her own crown. Uh, she was in charge. Uh, she was uh, putting Jamie to work. Jamie was torn, of course. But then, like, she was playing Game of Thrones with the Khaleesi uh, until the Khaleesi was pulled north. Uh, and she was working with that Reaver dude, Euron. And she has that mad scientist. She has a blue-faced man working for her. And Jamie's also very, I'd say, I mean, I don't know who the most tragic character is that's made it through all seven seasons. I mean, you got a lot to pick from. And I don't mean like a heroism and tragedy. I just mean pure tragedy. I mean, say like Sir Jorah, Jamie Lannister. Seriously, she might be too unredeemable to be tragic, I guess. Who are the other tra tragic, most tragic characters? Uh, there's got to be, I mean, maybe the red woman. I don't know. We, I guess we don't have enough character for her. I mean, could be Tyrion. Could, we could see something with Tyrion. I mean, a lot of the Starks have been through a lot. Uh, which, like, they've dealt with tragedy, but this is more like... Uh, where you just like, it's like Jamie's the one character that just can't get in Jorah, that can't get anything right. Uh, uh, you say, what are you thinking? Every time you say, can we sit down for a second? I mean, with Jamie, it makes a little more sense because he's just like devastatingly handsome. Where he says, well, I just got to like, like, look at me, man. I make my own decisions, but you know, I don't have to think about it. I say, okay. And Sir Jorah does have rugged handsomeness to him, but, uh, he has a yeah. He has a bit of handsomeness to him too. I don't know. Could it be Khaleesi? I'm trying to think of what other. I mean, Sansa's has definitely had her journey's gotten. She's had ups and downs. Uh, where yeah, I don't know. Like uh, Jamie and uh, Sir Jor have had moments. Uh, I don't know. I just think about him like. Uh, so we'll we'll see. Other things they missed, other characters that had smaller journeys, Brienne of Tarth, of course, the Hound, 
So the hound was like uh, one of the Lannisters' lackeys for a long time and got on Arya's uh, bad list. Uh, then eventually hooked up with Arya at some point, and they were a crew, which was a cool crew. Uh, then he hooked up on again and off again with the Brotherhood of Banners. Uh, and then uh, at some point he took a visit, quick visit to the big farm in the sky. Then he hooked up with the Brotherhood of Banners again. Eventually hooked up with, in, he's in Jon Snow's crew. Uh, with the Brotherhood of Banners, which is uh, like the best, I mean, right currently, even before Khaleesi got there, that's probably the best crew to be in. Um, so there's that, uh, and in that, I, I guess I'd have to rewatch those episodes. I don't even know, uh, what, like who, who's like around. I'd have to watch that last couple of two episodes again. Um, but I'm sure I missed a lot. Of course I did, uh. I mean, we had Tyrion's journey, kind of Tyrion's been around, like, in a very similar way. Uh, you have Bronn, who's kind of like Jamie's. uh, he was originally Tyrion's sidekick, then he's become Jamie's sidekick. I'm sure maybe he'll return to being Tyrion's sidekick again. Bronn's a sellsword. Uh, Tyrion's the smarter, uh, but more conscious, like, makes his decisions. Now, I guess there's moralist, uh. Uh, he's just a, he's the most intellectual character, I guess. Probably, I mean, Varys, maybe, uh, Khaleesi, she's like, uh, um, but yeah, so like eventually Tyrion's gone from being a Lannister, uh, to in the Khaleesi crew. But at the last episode, I say, well, where, what's going to happen to Tyrion next? Uh, Bran was like shortly for a short time in Caitlin's crew, but then he joined up with Tyrion, but he's kind of like, it's the character. We have the characters in the South. We haven't really heard from, I don't know if we'll hear from them again. Uh, not, I don't know what the, like the Bravosi. I don't know if we'll hear from any of the Bravosi again. I mean, we get to deal with that dude, Euron, sooner, sooner the better for him. And he's from that island. I forget about that character. Theon, Theon Greyjoy. Who's that? That name just popped in my head. Is that who I'm thinking it is? Is Theon like, there's another tragic character. Is that who Theon is? Theon Greyjoy's. Yeah, there's Euron Greyjoy. So Theon, I think, is he's like, uh, holy cow. He, he He's another one. But he doesn't, he's unlucky. No, he makes poor decisions, too. So I guess, like, to, to, for me, the tragic characters are the ones that make the worst decisions. I mean, because the characters are trying to make the best decisions they can. They're just always terrible. So you have a, a, a triad of uh, Jamie, Theon, and uh, who's the other person? I already forgot. <laughs> oh, uh, Sir Jorah. Uh, so, yeah, Theon is, like, he was just, uh, like, a... It's complicated, but he was kind of like a like a, living with the Starks as like a guest, uh, and like as a bargaining guest, but kind of part of the family, but never part, totally part of the family. He definitely had an inferiority thing. Uh, he wasn't as handsome as the Stark boys. I mean, just a fact, uh, or quite as skilled. So he's always trying too hard. And then he like uh, had like those issues where he wanted to go home, but he wasn't welcome at home. And never good enough. So he, he he's gone on quite quite the journey too. 
I mean, just a brilliant show overall. I mean, I guess like you're trying to put six seasons or whatever and remember them all in 50 minutes isn't easy. But yeah, that's a little bit of the tale of the tape of what I remember of the first six or five, six or seven seasons of Game of Thrones. Just to get you caught up uh, uh, for this season that's about to start soon. Good night. All right, hey everybody. Uh, tonight's episode is another. This it's been. I think it's been a little while since I've done one of these. It's a tail of the tape episode. And normally, uh, usually these sometimes these are seasonal, but this happened to be. I'll kind of walk you through the structure why where, when this came up and uh, and then yeah, like so structurally, what I'll do is the, the tail of the tape episode is basically taking a movie. I used to watch as a kid, and to some of you, these will be movies you, you have no familiarity with, but and you could check out, in, in a movie I haven't seen in a long time, and then try to remember the plot of the movie, basically. It's a movie that had great meaning to me when I was a youth, and say, well, Scoots, if that movie was so important to you, what happens in the movie? I say, well, good question. Mm. And I kind of found by accident that this, this structurally works. And then we kind of, as we see how it unwinds, uh, if we have time at the end, I'll kind of look up some facts about the movie or the plot and kind of some articles and see how it matches up. Uh, but to start with, I like to go in mostly with a little information. Though there has been times that, uh, yeah, like that hasn't worked out. But so, but that's the beauty of editing and pausing it. And here's the first thing I'll misremember, but this just happened yesterday, was I was driving, I was coming back from a road trip, and a song came on, and now I can't think of who sang it, but it's an 80s song, and it go, like it's uh, We Are Young, I think is the, uh, and, and there's a couple of songs, We Are Young, so this might not be the one you're thinking of. And it's not sang by... Uh, Oh, good boy. So this is already, maybe I'll think of who's saying it. Uh, it's not Debbie Harry, uh, but it, it's uh, like, a, so, but it's an 80s songstress. Maybe Linda Ronstadt? No, probably not. I know who it is, like, part in part of my brain, because this was literally yesterday. This song came on. And I said to myself, this is a song from the movie Legend of Billie Jean, which comes up on the podcast uh, it was one of the movies I saw in my formative movie-watching years. My formative, well, for, like, it wasn't my formative years, becoming, going from a boy to a man. I was still a boy. Because my my blooming was later than most. Uh, that's, how, that's how I keep, you know, such a useful, youthful attitude now. But so, uh, was it Linda Ronstadt? I don't know. It's not, um... Who sings that other song? Really great song. Oh, uh, who sings the song that I used to make up a ton of parodies of it? I don't know. Like, I love rock and roll. I don't think it's that person either. That's Joan Jett. But you know what? You know, I'm in that. It's somewhere in that ballpark. I'd say very Joan Jett-esque. Or if if the Linda, if Linda Ronstadt is who I think it is, uh... You know, I think t- t- today's, today you'd call it power pop, maybe. Uh, but so that was one of the songs from the movie. And it made me think this movie, The Legend of Billie Jean. And I have great fond memories of it. So we'll get into 
So we'll talk about it. I guess the start, yeah, let's just get, let's get to it, right? Okay, so The Legend of Billie Jean, I don't think I saw it in the theater because I was probably too young. I'm almost positive of that. But then, like I've talked about on the show, there was this great period in my life where there was some special for HBO or whatever the package is that we had HBO in my house for like two years. And this is when I was exposed to a lot of things that would permanently impact my life in a positive way. Uh, not necessarily the news, kids in the hall. And I watched a lot of movies that probably, I think they were probably on during the day. Uh, but so, and we would either tape the movie or we just watch it over and over. So this movie, Legend of Billie Jean, and again, I don't know how it holds up, but it really is an interesting movie, uh, zeitgeist-wise, uh, I, I, I think, and in a powerful way when you think about, well, how I remember storytelling. Uh, but I think in some way, uh, it, it looks in my memory, I say, well, Jesus is really um, a, a forward movie for the 80s. And maybe not in what I'm exactly thinking. I'm thinking in, in, in some different ways. Uh, uh, just because the 80s were kind of a time of uh, like vanilla ice cream only. And so you say, would you, would you prefer saltine crackers or vanilla ice cream? Even if you were talking subtextually, you'd say, well, I'd like French vanilla. Um, so I don't know, I guess I'm, 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 I'm mixing my metaphor, I'm mixing up my metaphors, but so, so whatever age I was, it was like a late grammar school or what is it? What do people call it? Uh, elementary school, grammar school age. And this movie had, it starred two Slaters, uh, Helen Slater and Christian Slater. And I believe this is probably Christian Slater's first film. And I think Helen had been uh, maybe in one or two movies, like in a starring role, but she was the star of the film. And it did have like, a, I don't know all of the cast, uh, and I'm not like, a, but it did have Peter Coyote and, uh, oh boy, uh, Yardley. Yardley Smith, uh, who plays uh, Lisa Simpson, I think, or maybe not. Maybe I'm, uh, but anyway, yeah, I may, I may be wrong. Uh, so I could be wrong on that one. Maybe, maybe huh? Maybe I'm almost positive she's a voice of one of the Simpsons. Maybe it's Marge, because I think uh, whoever plays Lisa Simpson was in another movie based on a TV show. That's about to be rebooted, uh, but I could be, you know, I've been wrong before. Also, uh, the actor who was also in Back to School, which must have come out before this, because they already had an affinity for him, just because he was a relatable, uh, he, he's not the lead in this movie, he was a lead in that movie, uh, because he's not like a big uh, hunky male, so I said I, I could relate to him. Uh, but it was the Slaters that, uh, like, uh, were the uh, features, I guess, of the film. Oh, did I see Peter Coyote was in it? He, he kind of uh, uh, was in it. And then um, one of the uh, one of the secondary characters from uh, uh, Top Gun was in it. I want to say his name's Hobie Cat, but I think that's the name of, like, a pontoon, like, a sailboat 
Maybe his name is Hobie, though. Hubie was his name in the movie. I don't know. We'll look it up later. But so Helen Slater and Christian Slater, who I continue to have great affinity for, and particularly Christian Slater, he went on to be in uh, Gleaming the Cube not that long after this movie, which is another movie. I don't know if I watched it quite as many times. It, like, it was a movie I liked a lot. A couple of my siblings love it. And I think I would love it uh, if I'd watched it more. But I guess I just loved uh, this movie a little bit more than that. And I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I said, uh, I mean, I do, particularly I'm proud of Christian Slater just because of, uh, he, like, he's interested in Mr. Robot. And he kind of had, like, a, like a career with a couple different lives uh, where he was uh, expected to go one way. Then he kind of... Uh, had a period where he was a little bit absent, and then he came back in a different direction. And he was really good in The Contender. I think that was a movie, which was like his kind of comeback. Uh, then, then I'm not exactly sure because I don't watch a lot of TV, but then I said, is that Christian Slater or Mr. Robot? Holy cow. Uh, but it may, I mean, it may, maybe Helen Slater's best known to people. I think currently is in Supergirl. It was originally in the movie Supergirl. I think it was also in the, um, what was that one Superman TV show that was like a rom-con? Uh, like uh, Clark and Lois, maybe it was called. I, I don't know. Uh, Lois and Clark, the new Superman. I think that's what it was called. Yeah, but so, um, what was my point? I don't, um, oh, I'm a big fan of the Slaters. That's, I guess, what I would do, like, uh. So I guess we could talk about the movie now, if I could remember how it opens. Uh, and there is a bit of irony, because one of the focuses of the movie is a scooter. And this was back in the 80s. And so scooters in the 80s are different than they are today. They didn't have, uh, or probably at some point they did have the foot power scooters or the electric scooters that uh, people, especially in cities in America, yeah, you say, okay, well, you, you may, may be a subject that it, it brings up feelings for people. And at some point, like in the 80s and the 70s, uh, people had things called uh, mopeds, I think was what they're originally called. And when you would see romantic things, like in Italy, people had scooters, which were like a, I don't know, lower powered, like a less than a uh, motorcycle. Uh, but still you could get around. And now that I'm kind of thinking of the opening images, I'm pretty sure this is just where I get a bit, bit mixed up. Uh, uh, but I'm pretty sure the opening images of the film were Helen Slater kind of returning home uh, from work, uh, like whatever her job was, in a beach town, like which I'd assume was like a service job in the beach town. Maybe they showed her working or getting off work. Yeah, maybe she worked in some cool beach-related thing. And then cruising and kind of seeing that she was a very, uh, like, well-liked uh, person, maybe. And then going back to a beach house, uh, which you say, well, what age range was? Then that's, that's another good question. And I'd say, I, don't, I honestly can't tell if... Uh, like in the movie, I'm trying to think if she was like the the adult, like maybe in her like uh, 
somewhere between 18 and 22. Uh, there didn't seem to be an adult, uh, adult figure, but I could be wrong. But she goes back to the house, and her brother's there, Christian Slater. Uh, she's Billie Jean. Her brother is maybe Pyatt, or is Pyatt one of the, um, I don't know, but uh, I can I can hear her saying it. Uh, and she gets home, and I'm pretty sure right away it establishes that she's very close with her brother. She loves her scooter. But now I'm thinking that maybe her brother had a scooter. So this is one point where I'll just definitely admit I'm probably wrong. This is why it's the tail of the tape in my mind. But I'm almost positive I could see her on a scooter, right, uh, in the opening of the movie, cruising and driving along. Uh, though I could also be remembering uh, the mo- a movie uh, with Linda Hamilton and maybe getting Linda Hamilton from a movie she was in with uh, the governor. And she's, I, I, okay, I probably am. I'm probably picturing Linda Hamilton riding back on her scooter um, uh, to to her house uh, in, in equating that with Helen Slater. So that could be, this is where the tail of the tape, you know, you say, well, those tapes were, uh, yeah, we, we dubbed over that and accidentally, you know, we had to, this was back when you had to use a VCR. Uh, but so the movie opens with Helen Slater. We'll just say that. Then we see her brother, maybe Pied, uh, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, then we find out that, uh, like, uh, the, her brother, uh, Christian Slater, uh, he, his pride and joy is this, his scooter that he saved up, uh, all his money for and uh, really loves. Uh, and then very quickly, I guess, you know, to keep the action moving, maybe the other characters are established, which are two friends, neither of which is name I'm going to remember, uh, but one, two young women that are, uh, I guess, uh, friends or na- and neighbors and I don't remember the names. One had longer hair, one had shorter hair. One was properly played by Yeardley uh, Smith or whatever, whoever's name. And the other actress, I, don't, I just honestly don't know. But those were the two friend characters. I don't know if there was any other friend characters. There is definitely isn't that I'm remembering. Uh, but like, uh, so what, what happens next is uh, we learn that... Uh, like something happens with Christian Slater's scooter. And what was the case? I, I thought of that dude's name and it ends up that it's this, uh, maybe his name is Pyatt. No, what's his name? Hobie. That's the actor's name. Hubie. Maybe that was his name. In the, maybe that's his real name. Maybe he's Pyatt. I don't know. But this, this total surfer bra, no offense to anybody out there. Just this is a, character of it character caricature yeah he gets like a i don't know if he's jealous of uh christian slater's scooter or what but uh they uh like uh borrow it i think and uh, uh like or something and, and the scooter gets totally ruined and they think it's all a big thing because this kid is rich uh, also 
And also, uh, Christian Slater's feelings, more than his feelings, get hurt. Uh, and I think he goes to try to um, stand up to them, and they say, well, we didn't do anything, you know. And at some point, that's when Peter Coyote gets involved. Uh, uh, he's like the, 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 the town sheriff, like the beach town sheriff. And he kind of says, what's going on here? And they say, well, we don't know. Somebody is like, it's a mystery. And he kind of stuck like, uh, you know, within the bounds of his profession. He says, huh, but Helen Slater, Billie Jean is not having it. So she goes up to this, uh, maybe he is Piet or is he Hubie? I don't know. But she goes to him, the surfer, and she says, you got to pay for this. And he goes, no. Now, her, his dad and him own some store. Uh, that, uh, like, sells trinkets to tourists, so, you know, overpriced T-shirts and stuff like that. So she goes to the dad, and she says, your son destroyed my brother's scooter, and he needs to pay for it. And he says, no, I didn't, Dad. You know, no, she's lying. And Helen Slater says, no, and, you know, this is like, you know, you'll pay for it. And the dad is played by an actor that usually plays like slime balls. Uh, and so, you, but he says, "Sure, I'll pay for it." And then what happens is quickly becomes apparent that this he doesn't intend to pay, and puts like uh, Billie Jean in a position where she further has to assert right and wrong, and uh, her boundaries. So then I don't know what happens next, except that uh, like this was before Christian Slater was in the movie, like. Uh, was he in that movie, right? Like uh, young, uh, like young cowboys. I think it was called uh, with Billy the Kid. But he, even in this movie, he fantasizes about being a Billy the Kid type character. And so, at some point, he gets involved and he pretends he's Billy the Kid. So I don't know if they take the money. Which, which was rightfully theirs, and in, like, Billie Jean's, uh, like, uh, saying, you know, hell no, uh, to the to the dad. But uh, I don't know. I think it, 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 go, it goes, like, uh, I don't know, it quickly goes, like, uh, awry because of Christian Slater uh, pushing uh, everything up a notch. And they have to bail, uh and, uh, like, uh, oh, yeah, so I think, oh, yeah, because the, 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 the dad of the, 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 the main sleaze, he bumps his elbow. And he says, oh, I bumped my elbow because your brother uh, bumped into me or something. You know, the usual, uh, and so they have to bail. And I don't know if they got any, I guess they didn't get any of the money. Yeah, but they still have to bail out of there. Because at this point, it's like the, the town rich guy and his bratty son. And so they bail. They go back to their neighborhood. Maybe they lived in a, like, a, I guess they did live in a trailer park. Because maybe that makes sense. Uh, like a trailer park near the beach. It just because they say, well, that'd be the, like, a, like for the, it makes sense with the two of them. And they're just closest to their neighbors. Also, Okay. Now I'm remembering a couple other things. Uh, but basically what they do is they, they they start packing up, the two of them, because they know they're going to get busted soon. 
And then their two best friends are like, what are you guys doing? Why are you so worried? Maybe they were even hanging at the house uh, or at their, their uh, yeah, at their place. And they say, no, no, we got to get out of here. They ask the one friend with the shorter hair, can you drive us somewhere? Because uh, we got to get out. And she says, sure. And the, the two friends are like, we're coming with you. And, you know, the one friend, she's younger she, with the longer hair. She's kind of like uh, wanting to get away anyway. And so then they all end up, uh, like, going, uh, like, they're forced to this call to adventure. Uh, but they go on this call to adventure, and they pack up a car, a station wagon. Now, this is where I guess my memory gets mixed up, whether the um, the, the station wagon was a station wagon for... Uh, um, what's that place called mini golf or if they go and they spend the first night or maybe this is just a dream of my, I mean, it is a dream of mine. Uh, the first place they go to hide out is like a mini golf place. Uh, that I guess would be closed down maybe cause it's the end of the summer. I don't know, but that they're hiding out inside a mini golf place. I mean, that would make sense that there is a mini golf place or if they're just hiding out in the, um, in the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, the, the station wagon, and it's just full of mini golf balls. Uh, but so I'm not sure about that. But uh, at some point they hide out, and then it suddenly becomes like this big deal. Like uh, because the dad, I think the dad puts up his own reward for busting Billy Jean. Because the police, Peter Coyote's like, okay, we'll catch. I mean, whatever. Like. Uh, and the dad's like, no. So he kind of makes like a a big reward to, to catch Billy Jean. And this is one aspect of it that it was like, a, a, like a, this would be the rest of the movie uh, becomes what people now call going, going viral. Like over the whole rest of the movie, it becomes the legend of Billy Jean that uh, yeah, she becomes a viral. I don't exactly remember how, though. Like, I remember, like, what happens next is, like, they go to, like, 7-Eleven and get food. They talk a lot, and you really establish that the four of them care for one another. Uh, so there's that part. Then, uh, they tr- like, they have to keep hiding out. So then, somehow they end up uh, trying to sneak into this house, uh... Yeah, and I don't know how they decided that or where, like, like a really fancy mansion or something that they said, oh, nobody's here. Uh, it's just a rich, rich person's beach house or something with a nice pool. So they go in there. What they don't realize is the guy that was the actor from, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, back to school lives there. And he's kind of like a a recluse and an introvert. And so then, you know, there's like some rising action, but it's more of like a a misdirect. And he says, oh, I know who you are. And then for some reason, it just happens that like a Joan of Arc movie's on. So they watch a Joan of Arc movie. And Billie Jean's thinking about, like, how, 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 like there's been already two levels of injustice, uh, or three levels, uh, I mean, literally at the hands of the patriarchy. I mean, 
uh, in the like, especially this upper class, uh, you know, patriarch and his son, you know, future patriarch. Yeah, and 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 it was all done in a kind of a straightforward. I mean, I think like. In, without trying to bury it in subtext, and, and I think that was a good, like, I don't know, that's where I'm surprised for the 80s was that part of it. Uh, well, one part was I was surprised, yeah, that it wasn't like, uh, like, for me, whatever grade I was in, I was like, oh, okay, I get this, I get the message, and it's being delivered for, to me in a straightforward way, but not spoon-fed not spoon to me at the time, but again, it might just, I don't know if it stands up to time. Uh, but another thing I thought was great was uh, the casting, um, because I really thought, and again, this is just my memory, is that the friend, like the four leads, uh, were even though I don't remember everybody's names, were uh, like the friendships were very believable, and that it wasn't like like I mean I realized they were all act, actors and actresses. Uh, but that they weren't professionalized. Like, there's something about profession. Like, uh, like the more people get into get into acting at a young age, uh, the harder it becomes for, to to get good uh, uh, performances from child uh, actors and actresses. I mean, I don't know if you know what I mean, but like, you see movies uh, where every kid. I mean, I guess this is, would be a little bit younger. These were like. Uh, high school to young adults, uh, but the performances were, at least at the time, I found them very relatable and believable, and without being like, uh, like they, they seem like real people. And so so they're staying at this uh, guy's house, and I think there's a ticking clock, maybe because his parents are coming home or something in a day or two. And they watch Joan of Arc. He kind of tells uh, Billie Jean that, uh, like, uh, he believes in what she's doing. Then she kind of goes into this introspective mode. Uh, also, the younger, long-haired character, she she uh, experiences her own personal change in growth. And then, uh, so Billie Jean's in her own uh, kind of figuring introspective mode. But also like a planning mode, in an accepting mode of her, uh, like needing to be, to stand up. But also to get this counter message out, uh, because this uh, patriarch dude was like, uh, like just you know, I'm gonna put up a reward because uh, Billy Jean's a jerk. And so she cuts her hair. I guess that was another point of the movie was that she had long blonde hair. And that was part of her identity up until this point. So she sees Joan of Arc. Uh, she cuts her hair. Also, they didn't have any change of clothes. So she was wearing, like, at some point they all go swimming, which I think probably happened earlier. And there's a water slide from uh, the kid's bedroom into the pool from the second floor, which was, like, this dramatic and cool thing. Um, but so she cuts her hair. She, like, uh, gets this, like, um, uh, like some sort of, um, what is that called, a wet, she starts wearing a, a wetsuit top, uh, which just, like, makes her look cooler. And then the guy tells her about the power media. Like, I think they had, like, a, like there's, like, a 25-minute Marshall McLuhan, like, think piece in there. 
it wasn't even resolved. They were like, well, is it, you know, and he said, well, now we have these cameras. We can get to, like, it, 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 this would have made sense on the Internet because this doesn't make sense in the movie. But at this point, for me, my my belief was suspended or whatever, my disbelief. Uh, but so they, uh, she films this thing where she says, uh, here's what really happened. Or, or I'm going to, like, uh, or, or she says, let's settle this, like, uh, like it's two honest people. She says to the dude's father, like, I'm willing to settle this. You pay for my brother's scooter or something like that. Uh, and she sets a time again, like, I'll meet you here. I think that's what happens because then it becomes this. And she also makes a speech where she says, fair, fair is fair, which is basically like, uh, your son damaged my brother's scooter, needs to be replaced. Now you're making up all this BS uh, to cover your and your son's tracks. Uh, uh, you know, and car, karma's coming. Now, meanwhile, uh, because of this, the, 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 the father figure trying to hype all this, uh, it becomes even more hyped. And uh, what happens is... Uh, like everything becomes viral. Like Billy Jean becomes viral in this positive way. Uh, the dad keeps hyping up uh, his reward, and she really does become this legend. Uh, and she goes this inspiration for people standing up uh, to old white dudes. I mean, basically, and just a, like of like a self uh, self uh, like self actualization. I don't know if that's what it is. Like. Uh, a bit of standing up for yourself and saying this is wrong. If fair, I don't know if it's fair means fair. Yeah, I think it's fair means fair. So, you know, they have some montages of them. Wait, there's another point where they go somewhere to eat and they meet a bunch of kids uh, who know who they are. Maybe they go to a party. I don't know if that's, it must have been after the video came out. Or they go somewhere. Yeah, but I think they went to a pizza place, they got free pizza. And uh, maybe a bunch of other free stuff. Uh, maybe they went to a store, and the kids that ran the store said, "Oh, well, my parents own the store." Like uh, maybe something like that. So, so they start to get like this uh, groundswell of support for Billy Jean. And again, it might seem tropey, but then even the dad uh, starts to capitalize, selling Billy Jean T-shirts uh, because he he like uh, to exploit like. Uh, like to commercially exploit her uh, her rebellious image, and I think then a radio station even offers uh, to give them a scooter. That's in the brothers like, well, we should just take a scooter from the radio station. And they say, Billy Jean, just come get the scooter. It's waiting for you. And Billy Jean's like, no, uh, we're we're getting the uh, we're, we're you know we're getting the scooter. Then I think the dad even. I don't know if it's a dad or somebody else erects this giant, like, paper mache, but a 20-foot statue of Billie Jean. Yeah, there must have been another, like, plot twist, but at some point they have to go down to the beach now. At this point, it's viral, so there's tons of people at the beach waiting for It's like Billie Jean Day, like Legend of Billie Jean. We see everybody's, like, it's become a fashion, she's become a fashion icon, and then, of course, like the hype that Billie Jean's like a like a 
subversive force because of the, the dad. Uh, so there's a lot of, like, Peter Coyote stuck in the middle. And uh, also the two friends get dropped off with Peter Coyote. He says, okay, what's going on? They say, nothing. Billie Jean just, like, uh, but then, it, like, Peter Coyote loses, like, jurisdiction. So that becomes this whole big thing. And then they say, well, will you meet with her, like, the dad? Uh, yeah, like, and then we'll just, you know, then we'll bring her in or whatever. Or, or are you really going to give her the money? And, of course, the dad, he's, like, so, like so slime. So uh, I can't remember what he does, but he says, oh, yeah, I'll give her the money, you know, and then you can bust her and then give me my money back or something. Or, no, he refuses to, so Peter Coyote has to put up the money maybe. Yeah, so, but I don't know. So they basically, it all culminates at the beach meeting. And the dad pulls some stunt at the very end. And it ends up like, uh, uh, I don't know, it ends up like with this very dramatic ending. Uh, I don't even, like, uh, where I think the dad hopefully gets, and his son get busted. Uh, Billy Jean's kind of shown... I don't know, maybe he tried to turn the tables on Billie Jean one last time. But she kind of says, uh, well, this is exactly, I think you like in the court, like right in front of everybody, she says, well, this is exactly what happened. Uh, and uh, I don't know, then the dad pulls something that was stunting one last time. Then Christian Slater bumps his elbow. I think just because uh, the dad pulled something. So then Christian Slater bumps his elbow. Peter Coyote's trying to keep everything calm. Then everybody worries about Billie Jean. Then her statue gets knocked over. And the dad, uh, all his uh, merchandise gets wet, like a giant wave comes in, basically. And it takes out his merch tent, which is great. And he said, no, no, my, I'm losing my Billie Jean T-shirts. And I think that's how it ends. But let me look up some stuff uh, just to get some facts here. Because I really don't think I'm doing the movie justice. Uh, so there's two. Uh, let's go to um, Wikipedia first. Uh, yeah, so it came out in 1985. Made $3.1 million at the box office. What rating was it? I don't see what rating it was. Uh, yeah, let's see, Ride, rides uh, with her younger brother on his Honda Elite 150 to go swimming. And Hubie, Piet, uh, uh, they, they, uh, they, oh, they, oh, they wanted to live in Vermont, too. That's how it ends. Uh, yeah, but Hubie takes the scooter. And, oh, the friends' names are Putter and Ophelia. And they, she goes to, to, to Peter Coyote, but he says, uh, just wait till the scooter comes home with your, your brother. It's just kid stuff. Uh, yeah, then Billy Jean tries to go get the money. Then uh, Binks is a brother, you know, uh, escalates everything. Mr. Pie bumps the shoulder. Uh, then Peter Coyote, Detective Ringwald, realizes he should have intervened earlier. Yeah, uh, Billie Jean just, you know, now Billie Jean's like, uh, Mr. Pied has to own up, uh, oh, yeah, so, uh, then they meet Lloyd, who's, uh, oh, wow, he's, uh, okay, so there's an extra layer with the video. 
and Lloyd, because his dad is the DA. Yeah, but they still film the video and everything. The Billy Jean becomes a teen icon. Young fans follow every movement. Uh, she brings Butter and Ophelia back. Uh, Ringwald. Uh, oh, they cover like they use a bunch of uh, Billy Jeans for distraction. Well, now it says Mr. Pyatt puts out the uh, reward. Uh, maybe that's where the culmination is. Her and her brother go undercover. Uh, then her cover gets blown. Uh, Binks bumps his shoulder. Uh, Billy Jean gets uh, Mr. Pyatt's, gives Mr. Pyatt's his, his, his deserved comeuppance. And everyone saw it. Uh, everyone sees it. And uh, Oh, and then they take out his store. And then later, Billie Jean and Binks are headed uh, to Vermont. Uh, and Binks looks after Red Snowmobile. Okay, so I did remember it. Uh, let's see, soundtrack. In- Invincible was Pat Benatar. Uh, did I say Pat Benatar? I don't think I did. Uh, we will be invincible. We are young. Uh, but it's Invincible is the name of the song. Okay, so let's look at Rotten Tomatoes. Like, uh, see how I did there. On the tomato meter, I got 40%, but the audience score is 75%. Let's just see if there's any um, critics we know. I don't see any famous critics here on the first page. Let's just dig deeper. I'm trying to find actual, like, reviews around when it came out. Not seeing anything earlier than 2005, so we'll skip that. And Film School Rejects actually has a, a post about watching, well, it's, I'll read it. Uh, 28 Things We Learned from the Legend of Billie Jean Commentary. Uh, let's see, a paraphrase. There's a lot of talk recently about the lack of uh, female superhero films, and great ones in particular, but one of us is uh, one of the people who missed out on stars Helen Slater, and it's not Supergirl. It's a Legend of Billie Jean. And, you know, has sidekicks and nemesis and a catchphrase, uh, fair is fair. Not fair means fair. Okay, so let's see. It, uh, the story and character beats Silver Fun and Excitement, set to a catchy's 80 soundtrack. Uh, roster of familiar faces Christian Slater, Yardley Smith, Peter Coyote, Keith Gordon, and Dean Stockwell. And the dude from uh, Top Gun. And, the, oh wow, I might have to watch I might have to find this on DVD. Helen Slater and uh, Yardley Smith are the commentators. Uh, yeah, and Yardley Smith says uh, she still gets approached by people who ask, uh, who quote, uh, because she was trans- she became a woman in the movie. Like, it was, she had her first period, and it was, just, it was a big deal for the, her character. One of her catch lines is, when, do, when can I get a diaphragm? Uh, Helen Slater's first comment uh, is that Christian Slater is not actually her brother. Holy cow, holy cow. She says people always assume they're related, uh, to which I can only reply guilty as charged. Oh, that's like uh, uh, the thing. I thought they were related, too. Holy cow. Uh, they uh, Both character, both actresses joke about their terrible southern accents. Uh, 
they said it was it might have been hard for Christian Slater because uh, the three actresses kind of hung out, but he didn't have anyone that was his age. He was 15, and he had to go to school during it. Yeah, let's see what else. Uh, they were like, uh, the film was rewritten a lot of times, uh, so much so that the original writer, Walter Bernstein, was ended up uncredited. Uh, they both liked working with Peter Coyote. Uh, there's like, uh, oh, it's PG-13. Uh, there's a lot of F-bombs. They said they're surprised, uh, and the, because, uh, Helen Slater was like, maybe my daughter's watch, gonna watch this, uh, I think it's okay to swear. Uh, they talk about Richard Bradford, who may be the, uh, dirtbag in the movie, the dad, uh, uh, well, they talk about the uh, other actress, Martha Garam. Uh, they also had to do, Helen had to do a lot of shots in a wig because of reshoots after her hair was cut. Uh, Smith still has the stuffed bear that her character loved in the movie. Oh, they were shooting uh, this movie when Supergirl came out and they some of the cast went to see it on opening day. Um... Uh, they shot it in Corpus Christi, Texas, and that's where it's uh, set, uh, and that they would go to the mall during their time off during shoots. Uh, Helen said that it was cool because there weren't malls in New York City. Uh, let's see, Yardley Smith was 20 in the, when when she shot the movie. Her character was 14. Uh, let's see, both were watching the film for the first time in a long time. And Helen seemed very taken with the various themes woven for through the simple plots. Uh, she comments on the power of media, truth, and betrayal through the whole film. Uh, while talking about the writer uh, Bernstein's uh, struggle, Billy uh, Jean's transition from long to short hair happened off screen. Uh, talk about the haircut. Uh, let's see. Uh, they have a jo- Smith's most regrettable scene is Putter's first period. Um, Smith's asked Helen if Keith Gordon was a good kisser. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember that scene. Smith asked Helen. Oh, I guess Keith Gordon is the, um, you know, he must be the, uh, the guy from, sorry, sorry, Keith. Keith, Keith Gordon is the actor that uh, was in, uh, I can't remember the other movie. Uh, back to school. Uh, she, Helen says she still gets fans, uh, people that approach her, uh, referencing this film more than any other. Uh, let's see. Butter's uh, haircut protest scene initially called for Smith to cut her incredibly long hair, but she resisted or protested. So she wore a wig. The big beach finale strikes both actors as a mystery. Neither remembers what happens. Uh, same here. And then they remember that Christian Slater's wearing a dress. Uh, yeah, they regret not keeping any swag from the movie. Yeah, Helen wishes she, she kept uh, some of the Frisbees they had. Yeah, but they said the one item Helen did keep was a sweater from the last scene in Vermont. 
in the final uh, thoughts from Film School Rejects. After seeing it in three, like uh, three decades ago, it became one of those movies that I never sought out but would watch again uh, on the rare occasion I came across it on TV. But since picking up the new Blu-ray, I've watched it twice more, once to re- reacquaint myself and once with the commentary. And both viewings were, were good fun. Uh, commentary shows Slater and Smith in good spirits, even though as they humorously struggle to remember the movie they're commenting on. Uh, they recall plenty of small details, but Henry having them wonder how the movie ends priceless. Uh, well, I'm glad I'm not alone. But it, and it sounds like it stands up, so definitely a movie to check out. I guess it's like on the the R side of PG-13 as far as language goes, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like... Uh, yeah, it was a movie I watched a lot as a kid. Uh, thanks, and uh, good night. All right, hey, everybody. It's uh, Scoots here, and tonight we're doing a Tale of the Tape episode where I try to remember a movie that I watched a lot as a kid, and I'll try to make the movie accessible to everybody because I know uh, sometimes uh, this might, movie, movie might be new to a lot of people. Uh, this particular one, you might be more familiar with the merchandise and uh, some of the other movies related to in the series. And also talk about some personal connections I have with the film. Now, this was a movie I did not see in the movie theater. I think the first movie in this series I saw was the third in the movie theater. And it's definitely the movie that has been overplayed, and I did do an episode about it. So the movie we're talking about tonight is National Lampoon's uh, Vacation. It may be called National—I think it's just called National Lampoon's Vacation and not Family Vacation. And so it's a movie—if you're unfamiliar with it, you might have heard of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation— or if you've scanned the cable dials occasionally, you may have seen this movie or uh, its uh, European version, National Lamp- the, the sequel, National Lampoon's European Vacation, which I have seen bits and pieces of in the last few years, just like uh, like not, like you know, these are not movies you, you really want to see on TV, but normally you do. Just because the flow is interrupted by the commercials, some of the uh, the comedy may be edited out or vanilla made into like something vanilla. And but this is a movie I've seen like uh, maybe a hundred times, maybe not that many times. And so it's a movie about a family going on a, a road trip. So it's a genre film, you know, uh, and I think there's like a TV show or two recently that I didn't see, like series that kind of about families on road trips. So it's a popular genre. I want to say it's a John Hughes movie or an Ivan Reitman movie, but I'm not sure on either one of those uh, I don't know who else could have done it, uh, but uh, I guess I'll look that up if if we have time to look up any actual facts about the movie. It stars Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Anthony Michael Hall, and I think that's as far as I get with remembering things. Randy Quaid's in it. Uh, actually, the dude, uh, the actor from the Karate Kid reboot with Kai, you know, something, Forest Friend Kai, K-A-I, 
He was Johnny from the original Karate Kid movie. He's in this movie before. I think this was well before Karate Kid. Maybe not. Incredibly handsome uh, performer. And I don't know when this movie came out because I think the first time I saw it was on HBO. And I don't think the first time I saw it, it was necessarily complete. Like, like, this is definitely a movie that, unfortunately, I, I haven't seen... I've seen more in chunks and start to begin is it start to finish because as start to finish. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, uh, but I will say that I, I would guess it holds up, uh, but it, like it, it, it does suffer from being on cable TV so much that uh, the scenes that you have seen, you may grow tired of. Uh, so that's what's nice about seeing the beginning of it, because I think the last time I saw it was probably 10, 12, 20, I don't know, years ago. But when I did see the whole thing, I said, wow, really, there's a nice, the beginning of it's a very, very funny. It probably would be a good one to see it in the movie theater again. So if anybody's doing a revival of it, hit me up and let me know. Uh, so... I think that's it for this episode. Family vacation movie. Those are the stars. Uh, if you're not familiar with those stars, com- comedic uh, actor and then an actress with the comedic range and, and dramatic range. Uh, so, and then Anthony Mike. So, so it starts in a Chicago suburb. So that's why I say, huh, is this a John, John Hughes movie? I'd like to see John Waters version of it, to be honest. That would be absolutely amazing. Can you imagine? That would be really cool. Uh, John Waters' uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. I guess you could do it as a musical. Maybe this movie has been a musical. I'm not sure on that either. And I'm not sure. I guess the soundtrack is very 80s, so I don't know if this movie came out in the 80s or the late 70s or the 80s or the mid-80s. I just have no idea at all. Because I would guess National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation came out in like 1990, and that's just a ballpark of a guess. Or 1991. I'm just just guessing at when I would have gone to that in the movies. Okay, so I guess that's a basic setup. So if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. I'll, I'll cover what I can remember. It's a pretty long film, uh, and the star of the movie, uh, or. Uh, the 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 main character, I guess, the character. I, get, I don't know if you're supposed to identify with him because he's not super sympathetic. Uh, but the foil. Uh, so if there's like, what is that called? When uh, if, if it's not zeitgeist, it's the other big word I know how to use sometimes. Oh, if you're gonna you know pour some Schadenfreude on it, uh, it's a Chevy Chase plays Clark Griswold. Uh, Ellen Griswold is played by Beverly D'Angelo. Russ, uh, Rusty Griswold is played by Anthony Michael Hall. And I don't know the name of the actress who plays uh, the sister or her name this second, but it probably will come to me because I can hear them talking in the car. And Clark Griswold has dreamed. He plays it back in the 80s. You know, this is a... This is a mythology of mansplaining, I guess, if, if you want to put a cultural dot on it, because you say, uh, I, I, I mean, he was supposed to be the every person. And, you know, I guess this was the 80s because it was very um, uh, unicultural, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. So he he lived in the suburbs uh 
of Chicago. He worked for a corporation. I know in National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation, he works for like an additives company. So maybe a cereal additives company, C-E-R-A-L. Maybe he worked there in the regular movie. And I don't really totally remember how the movie starts, uh, if he's at work or if he's at home. But there's a couple big scenes at the beginning of the movie. Well, you know what I'm remembering is uh, I think I'm wrong. Oh, boy, am I wrong. The guy from Karate Kid's not in this movie. I just realized that. So first mistake right up front. Oh, I almost, I just almost remember the sister's name. You know, the kid, Rusty and his sister are played by different character act, actors and actresses in every movie. So Johnny Galecki played uh, the uh, Rusty in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Maybe, maybe my memory's incorrect though. Uh, but so in this movie, the the guy from Karate Kid's not in it. So forget all about that part. No, no one from Karate Kid is maybe not in this movie. Maybe they are. Uh, but so okay, so Clark Griswold is uh, like I don't know. So he's a dude, like a uh, average dude, ba- you know, basic. Holy cow! Uh, and he works for somebody. He's a corporate dro- droog or drone. I don't know which one. And he's he's uh, he's a bit of a buffoon, which is kind of a, a, a typical Chevy Chase character. Big ego, uh, but you know, no self awareness, and clumsy and goofy. So, and Beverly D'Angelo uh, as Ellen, as she tries to um, manage him, uh, seems to love him for for you know some reason, and. Uh, their kids are just put out the whole movie. They say, geez, we got this dad who's too much. And so no reason, no, you know, not surprising that I identified with the Chevy Chase character a lot as a kid. Uh, so, oh, let's get to the movie, right? All righty, Scoots. Uh, so the movie starts out, I don't know, I don't know how the movie starts, uh, but it has a, a song called The Holiday Road that's at the end of the movie that oh, maybe there's some themes from that uh I don't know if that's a Kenny Loggins song or not. There was once upon a time at the end of the movie, so there's a song, Holiday Road, during the credits. And I was in a basement of my friend's grandmother's, and we had been, um, I don't know how old we were, too, too young but not old, you know, and we were uh, we were kind of, it was uh, like just me and a couple of my friends, and we, I guess we were P-A-R-T-A-Y-I-N-G-ing or something, but not really because it was just four of us. Uh, in his grandmother's basement's house, uh, and it was late at night, and we were all singing along with the movie at the top of our lungs. Uh, so it was like a high point of my like like a childhood or teenagehood. But this was after we had seen the movie thousands of times. So the movie starts. Uh, well, the scenes I remember from the beginning of the movie is like one thing is like nothing ever goes Clark's way and he always has unrealistic expectations. So he's going to buy a new car for their family trip. Uh, they're going to Wally World. You say, Scoots, what's the goal? And what are the needs of the characters and stuff? I say, well, I don't know about any of that stuff, but I do know their goal is to reach Wally World in California and the re- that's the reason I was thinking of this movie is because I went to Six Flags Magic Mountain and Knott's Berry Farm with Ray. 
a while ago. And uh, I, I think the movie was shot at one of those theme parks. But I, I think it was Six Flags Magic Mountain, just the end of the movie. Uh, also, yeah, John Candy's at the end of the movie. Not that, that, that That's not really a spoiler. Uh, so, okay, so the movie starts with Clark trying to pick up his new car that he ordered uh, or had purchased. And he goes... I don't know if Eugene Levy's in this movie, but I don't think he is. But uh, I don't know why I just saw it. Eugene Levy just popped in my head. I said, hey, Eugene. I saw Eugene Levy at, uh, across the room. I was uh, too afraid to uh, approach him. But uh, at uh, some event uh, last fall, I was in the same room as him, one of my heroes, uh, but you know, I, I you know, also well. Anyway, uh, who else was in there? Some other famous, like I said. But I said, well, I'm just going to sit here and stand here with my sparkling water alone. Don't talk. But I did. To, anyway, where was I? So he goes to pick up his car, and they have the car order wrong. He ordered the family truckster, or maybe he ordered some other car, sport package. I know, I think it was a sport. Uh, he ordered, so this is going to be new for a lot of you younger listeners. You probably heard of these things called station wagons. And before they had minivans and SUVs, they had station wagons, which was like an extra long car, pretty much like a hearse. Uh, the only difference was the bodies packed in there were, were uh you know, with the kid, the family. So that was the only car other than a van you could buy that you could fit, like, more than six people in, or you could fit a ton of luggage and stuff. Uh, so Clark had ordered some other car, but a station wagon. He drives up in his car that he's doing a turn-in or whatever they call that. I've never done that. All my cars have been driven to the end of their time, or it was a lease. But this one, like, is where you exchange, you know, you get your credit for your car, a trade-in, that's what they call it. Thank you, uh, car dealership brain. So he turns in his trade-in, and they already start taking care of that. So so you see that car being um, mushed up to go bye-bye. And then Clark's gets strung along, along by the car salesman, saying, oh, this car's even better than what you ordered. Uh, costs more money, but it's you know so much better for driving cross-country. And the car kind of doesn't ever become a character in the movie, but it, it's, it's like a vehicle for some jokes at Clark's expense, including this time, because he, you know, folds. He doesn't, he, he says, well, for, actually, he doesn't. Um, again, is like in this Rodney Dangerfield does a comedian in the 80s. Okay, I don't get no respect. Uh, so you try to cultivate the every person feel that uh, when you go to get a car, it's always a hassle. It never works out, and the people are always trying to pull fast one on you. So by the time Clark gets a car, it's not the car he wanted. It doesn't. Ha- it's horribly ugly. It's like green. It has like six sets of headlights. The station wagons back then used to have this fake wood paneling. It's got all that stuff. Uh, and plus his son's with him, I think. And he's like, Dad, these guys are uh, messing with you. Aren't you going to stand up to him?" And then he demands his car. But they had already, which I don't understand because they usually sell used cars. But I think it was just for a joke that they had put his car into a cube. So he says, I'm leaving here with um, my car, you know, I don't want to, this isn't the car I ordered. And they said, well, here's your car. It's a cube because he's leaving the next day on the vacation. 
So I guess that's kind of what happens. So that's one scene in the movie. Then the next, then there's other scenes. I think there's another, then there's a scene with him driving. The car's not working right. Then there's a scene where they're planning. And again, the family just wants to go go to Hawaii, which I think in the 80s was like, I think people still go to Hawaii a lot, right? But like in the 80s, it was like the promised land. Like that's where everybody, especially... I guess, I don't know if that was the thing in Chicago, but it's like, oh, you're going to Hawaii. That's a fa- the fancy place. Uh, and Wally World is kind of like, a, it's a, it's not as hyped up as Disney World in this movie, but for Clark, it is like this uh, this mecca of uh, family purity and unity uh, that he's chasing after. So then there's like a planning scene where the... Um, He's, he's like over planning. He's super excited about all the stops they're going to go to, you know, the world's largest ball of yarn. And this one, I think, kind of sets up that like uh, our likability of Clark. It's like, oh, okay, can I pity him? But he, he's so, he's so, he seems genuinely excited for this. And his family's like, Dad, this is so lame. And then his kids start playing video games over. He's using a computer to kind of show the route and. Audrey is the daughter. Audrey and Rusty make computer games go over and and and, and take out his car and everything. So it's a little bit more comedic. Uh, shows if you know family. Shows Beverly D'Angelo's character. Uh, what's uh, I can't can't remember. But but so she's trying to say like Clark. You know, come on. Like let's just we could still go to Hawaii. You know, we haven't spent any money except on the car and stuff. And he's like, no, 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 this is going to be a great vacation. And then they head out on the road, I guess. Uh, this is where, this is where you're probably, I'll probably, I get, probably get lost pretty quick. Because uh, I don't really remember where they go or what happens next. Uh, so they leave Chicago and uh, let's see. They, uh, I don't know what, so they have a ton of luggage. I, I remember this much, but I think this must have happened later in the movie. Is, uh, yeah, so, so I don't know. So they set out, they say goodbye to their neighbors, and they hit the open road, right? And then what happened? And then what happens? That's a great question, because I know there's some of the places they go, but they don't go to those quite yet, because uh, it's like in this, like uh, in the next, so they set out, uh, and we get a feel for them driving. You know, Clark is uh, happy on the open road. And the kids are in the back. And at some point, we get introduced to a character played by Christy Brinkley, who was not, I don't believe, you know, the term, there used to be this term supermodel. I don't think it's used anymore. And she was one of the original supermodels, I believe, or like right around that era. And for me, as a young male, like, uh, I mean, I was like a prepubescent male. Like, this was like uh, one of my first internal stirrings, I'll be honest with you. And not just, well, anyway, we don't need to get any details. So, so this was part of my formative experience of this film. And, and I mean, in a, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, it just was. I guess that's why I'm having trouble speaking. It just really was a part of my formative experience, and probably in a ways that was not exactly realistic because uh, she's driving like a Ferrari, a red Ferrari. And I believe she makes like three or four appearances in the film. 
And she's kind of uh, plays this very like uh, this fantasy character uh, where she goes racing up next to Clark and then she sees Clark and I don't know what draws her to Clark. Uh, because again, this movie is probably written by people that identified with Clark. So they were like, oh, she's definitely, uh, finds him attractive or f- likes to flirt with him. So she's kind of flirting as they're driving side by side and Clark's sweating. And that's just one scene that's like, you know, I remember because they said, holy moly, does this really happen? I don't even know how to drive a car yet. Like, because they try to pass notes to, 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 to people I have a crush on. They won't give me the time, you know, like during Spin the Bottle. Remember, I told you this on an episode. It's like, uh, no, I mean, it's just true. Like, no one wanted to kiss me. And then the one person that did, I was friends with, Julie, she said, remember, this doesn't mean anything. It was a good thing she said that because I probably, like, I was like Ralph Wiggum. So... Uh, so I guess like, uh, it skewed my view of, uh, they said, Oh, one day someone will just drive by you in a car. That's, that's how you become, uh, you, you transition from boyhood to, uh, you know, the, the one day someone will just pass you by in a car and say, Hey, but Hey, but Hey, hey you know, let's, uh, let's drive fast together. So just in case you're listening and you understand any of this stuff I'm talking about, uh, doesn't, you know, that's just, uh, it's just a movie. Okay, so how does the movie start out, though? Holy mackerel. It's like uh, they get on the road. Uh, where do they go? They go to, uh, like, I'm trying to think of the places they went alone. I mean, I would think, like, I know at some point they stop at Dodge City, and it's just a four of them. Like, so we see Christy Brinkley, Clark Sweating, then he's driving. Then they go to Dodge City, which is like this. I don't know where it was. Maybe that's Dodge City. Is some, maybe that's uh, I don't know. Yeah, but it's like an old west style town, like a movie set almost. And uh, they go and they uh, they're doing tourist stuff. Clark Clark kind of overplays his hand with a bartender. Uh, the, like uh, Clark and Rusty kind of have some bonding, but it, it's kind of like. Uh, Clark plays a bit of a buffoon, and I, so I, I know there was a, that was a scene. So I remember that one. Uh, so that happened. I'm trying to think what else happens. I know they lose their luggage. I thought that was later in the movie. There's a point where Clark's driving. I'll just go in what not in order because of what I remember, but trying to put it in order. There's a scene where Clark's driving and he's uh, everybody's a little snoozy poo, and uh, I think this is when they lost the luggage. And Beverly says, uh, uh, "Well, I almost remembered his name, her name, her character's name." Uh, but she says, "Clark, honey, turn out the TV, go to bed." He says, "Okay," and then they accidentally just drive into a motel parking lot. Then they get two motel rooms uh, for mom and dad, and. Uh, uh, the kids, and then uh, they just uh, they they have one of those vibrating beds. The parents uh, where you put two quarters in, and Clark is kind of like a charming goofball in this movie. So he says, "Hey, honey, rub you know rub a dub dub. I got some uh, quarters uh, for this bed to you know who, who, who he had champagne." I think this is all in this part of the movie, and then he says, "Yeah, let's get you know." Uh, 
let's drink some champagne, you know, like, uh, that, you know, that's what the, the, that's what Scoots thinks adults do. Uh, but then they do, like, then they, uh, then the bread breaks and it's vibrating out of control. So they move to the floor. They're just uh, holding hands, the kids, uh, and then the bed is making so much noise. The kids come in the room. They're under the covers on the floor. And the kids are like young enough that they're like, this is, you guys are just so weird. You, why are you, what are you doing? Uh, it's played, it was pretty comedic and funny. I don't know. There must have been more scenes in there. Like, I remember another scene where they're lost uh, in another city, I think St. Louis. Uh, and maybe they went to the St. Louis Arch. I remember them driving through St. Louis. They asked for directions. They lose their hubcaps. Maybe they lost some tires. Uh, um, let's see. I don't think there's anything else in that scene. Uh, so there's St. Louis, Dodge City. They lose their luggage. Then Clark uh, goes to a hotel to try to cash a check. Oh, because they had, they had like, tra- he had no, this was before ATMs in the 80s or even credit cards. Most people didn't have credit cards, I think, when this uh, movie took place. If you want a good episode of 99PI, oh, what was it called? Something Drop, uh, Hangtown, where's Hangtown Fry from? Because it was, uh, wherever Hangtown Fry's from. I don't know the name of that city right off the top of my head now. But anyway, that's a good name of the 90, that's a good episode about credit cards, but I can't remember the name of it. 99% Invisible. That's the name of the podcast. I just can't think of the episode. But so they, they have to cash a check. And of course, no one's going to cash a check, out of state check from a stranger without credit cards. Uh, so Clark borrows some money from a cash register, leaves a check behind. That was definitely after Dodge City because he was kind of feeling rebellious. Uh, so that happens. Uh, at some point, they go and visit uh, uh, Uncle Eddie, which who, who's like uh, uh, in his family, played by uh, Uncle Eddie's played by Randy Quaid. And I, I guess I still try to figure out uh, in the movies who's related to who. Now, Clark's not related to Uncle Eddie or his wife, uh, Ellen, and I don't know. And I don't think Eddie, Uncle Eddie's related to Ellen. So I think Ellen's sister is married to Uncle Eddie. And they had a few different kids, but they also had a daughter and a son that were... Um, uh, the same ages as Rusty and Audrey, close close to it. So we get some comedic scenes where Audrey and the the uh, the daughter, their daughter, the daughter of Uncle Eddie, and um, uh, I can't remember the name, but so she teaches Audrey about the cannabis business. Uh, but this was back in the day when uh, all she did was you know keep it in under your like they grew, she grew her own cannabis. She was way decades and decades ahead of her time. Uh, so she teaches, you know, the, the, the joy of uh, for uh, Audrey that's 420 somewhere. And so Audrey gets to, 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 to realize for part of the trip, which probably would be handy. I mean, uh, not to encourage it, but, uh, you know, if you're Audrey's age, to have it be 420 all the time in that car with the family. She was not old enough to drive anyway. And then, like, uh, Rusty, it, it kind of is a little bit, there's a, you know, this is a dated movie, so there's jokes at a lot of other people's expense uh, that probably 
you'd be like, oh, the, I don't know about this. Uh, problematic. I would say there's lots of problematic scenes. Like the earlier scene in St. Louis is definitely problematic to me. And I guess I would say this one because it's kind of just making fun of their circumstances. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, there's some cool things where they twist it because then Rusty is with the son and he's kind of like, oh, you guys don't have video games. You know, it's life in the city so much cooler. And then he kind of says, well, I could teach you about, uh, you know, did you ever hear about Jocelyn Elders and what she wanted to teach kids, which is totally natural. And Rusty said, I have never heard of Jocelyn Elders. And he says, well, he, uh, have you heard of Masters and Johnson? And he goes, and he goes, because he goes, there's like something like that that I could tell you about. Uh, he goes, you don't know about it already. You didn't naturally discover it on your own. And I don't think Rusty did. So he learned about the joys of that uh, in it with some material to, to uh, visual aids. And that was more subtextual, but they definitely talked about it, which is, you know, a little bit uh, progressive because uh, it wasn't making fun of it or shaming it. It said, hey, this is something I like to do to pass the time. And it said Green Day wrote a song about it, you know, 20 years later. So. So that was so. Then they have uh, then they have uh, like dinner at um, at the farm or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think it was a farm at this point. And uh, the one scene, the one line in the movie. So they're making uh, the young woman is make the young daughter's making Kool Aid. She's stirring it with her hand or lemonade. Which Clark didn't like. Then they're having, and they're not in great financial straits. So they say Clark was eating a sandwich, but he goes, "Jesus, is this a real hamburger helper, Eddie?" And he goes, "Oh yeah." He goes, "Hamburger helper does just fine on its own." And I just always remember that line. It always sucks to me. I always love to say, "It just does just fine on its own," which is probably a misquote. Uh, then, uh, at some point, um, they kind of say, there's two like moments One they say, Hey, can you give us some money? Cause we're having trouble with the paying the bills here. And it takes a while. And then they say, you know, Clark says, she's how much you need. And they needed a lot of money. And I think Clark loaned them the money or gave them the money. And then they also say there's a aunt, uh, is it aunt Edith? I don't know what her aunt something. I think it's aunt Edith. She says, geez, have you, have you told them the good news? Uh, uh, have you told Ellen and uh, Clark the good news? And they say, no, we'll tell them later. And they say, well, what's the good news? And she says, you're taking me to Tucson or Phoenix or something to, to stay at her son's or, or so, something like that. And so they're like, what? You know, this is our vacation. And so they're not happy about that at all. Uh Especially Clark, like Ellen's much more generous. So, so she says, oh, okay. And they also has a, the Aunt Edith. I don't think that's her name, but I'll think of it maybe. She also has a dog. And I don't think the dog's name was Farful. That was from like a Seinfeld movie. But it's some dog, and it does not like Clark. It, it does, this dog does not like Clark at all. So that's everything. Then uh, they set out the next day. And let's see what happens. There's a couple different scenes. They drive uh, for a while that day. They stop, uh, and we see Christy Brinkley again, and Clark sees her. 
Also, we find out that the dog went to the, went to number one on the picnic basket. So Clark is like eating a bologna sandwich and kissing it to Christy Brinkley, who's dancing while pumping gas. I mean, I didn't even realize that, that subtext when I was a kid. I just was like, hey, one day all I'll need to do is sit here in a park uh, staring across and someone beautiful and uh, will... Uh, but so he's kissing a, a dog peed sandwich. So then he spits it out. Uh, I want to see her again for a little while. Uh, she drives off. Uh, and there's like a, a different music playing during these different scenes. Uh, then they go to like what would be considered now glamping. But in the back in this one, it's like, a, so it's canvas, pretty set up canvas tents that they stay at. And Aunt Edna, that was her name, not Edith. It just came to me. So they say, oh, okay, this one smells like pee. So they say Aunt Edna could stay there. They're really excited about this place because they were going to swim at the pool. And it had a great brochure. But it ends up the pool's like not swimmable. And it's another flop. Uh, and uh, then even Clark, and then again, Clark and Helen have a moment alone. Uh, and uh, so they say, well, like, uh, like, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's share a sleeping bag. And then, uh, I remember she goes, she calls him Sparky. Ellen calls Spark, Clark Sparky. And uh, she goes, oh, Sparky, wild animal, wild animal. Uh, and he goes, oh, he goes, oh, it, 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 there's just some lines that suck with me. He goes, oh yeah, Ellen, I think I'm going to go for it. Uh, uh, which I said, wait, see, now that I've, uh, I said, what is he talking about? Because I thought they were already kind of like uh, holding hands, you know, like, uh, and I thought he was like, well, I thought he was, I was like, well, you're already holding hands. How are you going to go for it if you're already, your hands are interlocked, right? Uh, but so then she goes, Sparky, Sparky, Wild Amble, but it ends up as a dog. Uh, so dog interrupts uh, that, uh, and Clark's not happy about that. So then the next day, uh, they get in the car, and Clark's distracted. It ends up that after they start driving, uh, they get pulled over because the guy says, Geez, I'm a, like, he says, you're on the highway to heaven. Your dog is. Uh, and Clark says, well, my goodness, I had no idea. He goes, don't worry, I'm out. You know, I'm kind of like the Michael Landon of the dogs on the highway to heaven and the big farm in the sky. But when they get pulled over first, like Aunt Edna's like, what did you do wrong, Clark? Uh, and then Rusty had had some uh, visual aids for his, uh, you know, Masters and Johnson's class. And Audrey was had a whole shoebox full of cannabis. So everybody was like, what the heck, what the heck? And I think there was even jokes about the magazines that Rusty had uh, and I think that was it, except that Aunt Edna had no idea that her dog was going to like going on the highway to heaven with this like Michael Landon character. So she was not happy. And I don't know what happened, like, uh, like, uh, what else transpires, uh, uh, if there's any other scenes that I'm forgetting, but so at some point that, uh, they're driving, it's kind of a low point because Aunt Edna's not happy Everyone's like, Clark, this is a failed trip. Like, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, why don't we turn back? Or why don't we just drop Aunt Edna off or, Aunt, put Aunt, or at an airport? 
Oh, I think maybe the next scene. Okay, I don't know which scene is which. Uh, uh, I guess, like, we'll, let's just guess uh, that uh, the next scene is that uh, Aunt Edna is, uh, she goes to the, there's two possibilities of the order of this, but let's just say Aunt Edna decides, you know what, my dog went to the, on the highway to heaven, I'm going to go on the highway to wherever they put me. And go to the big farm and see if I could see my dog there. She just does that while she's sitting in between Rusty and Audrey. And so they figure it out. And then they end up, uh, like, uh, this is like the low point of everybody for the movie. They end up, uh, that they're not comfortable with that. So they're like, uh, we got to bring her to, I think, Ellen's brother's house or Aunt Edna's son's house. And... So she gets to ride on the top of the car, uh, which is uh, like played for a visual joke, uh, which is pretty funny because it's just so like, uh, and they get to her her son's house and he's not even there. So they just leave. They say, well, she went, she already, she wanted to go. So they leave her there with a note saying she went to the big farm to join her dog. You know, here's uh, we're on vacation. This is kind of stuff. I, I mean, I don't know. You look back at it, you're like, geez, I can't believe they did that. But then you're like, uh, it kind of can. If I was like, but so yeah, they they say, okay, she's she's already at the big farm. There's nothing more we could do. And at this point, everything is pretty much. Uh, I guess I don't. I'm trying to think. Maybe this was the second thing that happened, but maybe not. Uh, but then so. The other scene that happens out there is out in the desert. They're driving. I guess this one it was like was before the scene, but these are like Cork's uh, uh, on his way down, you know. So, yeah, I think this was the lowest point in the movie. So that's probably so. This probably scene preceded it. So, Cork's driving. I guess he wasn't paying attention. And he doesn't know where he's going. He says he doesn't know where he's going, or he's not looking, or maybe he was looking at Christy Brinkley, who was drove by again. I can't remember. Well, he ends up driving off the road into the desert, gets four flat tires, and they're at a closed road, and he go, he has to go, get, like they're in the middle of the desert. Uh, and so he drinks a beer with Rusty, and he, he has this moment, which was kind of a good moment. He said, Jesus, this isn't going well. And Rusty says, no, it's not going well, Dad. You're really, you're really uh, this vacation stinks. And uh, he goes, now you're stuck here. And he goes, you got to be in charge of your mother and your sister and Aunt Edna. Yeah, because they, they crack some jokes about how Aunt Edna smells like mothballs or whatever. And he goes, I'm going to go look for you know somebody to come tow the car. And then he goes out wandering in the desert and is kind of like, uh, I guess it's like just a scene where he's like, uh, loses it. He's like, uh, I guess it's like for him to vamp a little bit, Chevy Chase, because he kind of sings and mumbles and wanders around. And then he finds his way or somebody helps him find a gas station where the car already is. And they overcharge him, of course, for like four bolt tires. And now he's out of money. I think he's, like, giving money to Ellen's sister and Uncle Eddie and uh, that much. And then, yeah, and then they go uh, with Aunt Edna. And actually they say, well, is there any money in Aunt Edna's purse? Because we have no money. So not only do they leave Aunt Edna at her son's house uh, after she's already departed the earth, uh, 
but they take her money uh, to because they have no money left. And now this is it for Clark. Like, so, like, uh, everybody's, like, mad at Clark. They're like, we got to give up. He's like, we're not giving up. We're going to Wally World no matter what. Uh, and it, oh, during when Clark decided to loan Eddie the money or give it to him, Eddie gave, he said, Eddie, you have really nice shoes. Eddie had these, like, l- white leather, like, kind of dress shoes. I don't know. Like, you just, you'd see, like, someone wearing a leisure suit with or something. And, uh, like, uh, he, he, like, Eddie's like, here, Clark, I got you your own pair of my shoes. So at this point in the movie, like, everything's not going well. Everybody's at the low point or almost the low point, right? Uh, and, uh, they get to this hotel and they get two rooms and Ellen's like, you know what, Clark, uh, I loathe you. And, uh. The kids are like, Dad, we loathe you. So he's like, okay, fine, I'm going to go out and uh, have a drink at the hotel bar. And he puts on the shoes. He, he kind of like is like uh, oblivious, right? He's like, uh, okay, you know, my drug drug my family on this uh, trip, and I made, you know, made all these mistakes. Uh, and so he goes down to the bar for a drink, and who's there but Christy Brinkley? And, uh, again, this is a very like deceptive because she's immediately like, Hey, what's up? Uh, and he's like, Hey, and he could barely carry a conversation, which I said, man, he can barely carry a conversation. Like I can't barely carry a conversation, but, uh, it went really well for him. And she says like, yeah, let's go swimming. Like, uh, and, uh, you know, hold hands, like totally hold hands in the pool and other places. And he's like, Really? And I guess just because he was already, like, pushed over the edge, but he goes over, for, he has to go further, I guess. Uh, and so he uh, he says, okay, let's, uh, let's, I guess let's, uh, and she even says, are you going to go for it? Which kind of harkened back to the other one. And again, this was like, uh, it was, this was all PG, I believe. It was all, maybe this movie was R, but there was no, nothing to see. I, I, I can't remember, but they, she gets in the pool and uh, then Clark gets ready to get in the pool. I think he gets down, strips down to like his uh, tidy whities And then he's like, like I'll never forget, this is another scene that I just really remember comedically. She, He's like uh, on the cusp of like saying, this is just a bad idea. Like, and he's saying, this is crazy, this is crazy, this is crazy. And then he goes to jump in the pool. And instead of saying like, instead of like anything, he just yells because the pool is so cold. And he yells so loud uh, that his uh, wife and his kids come out. They like are in the rooms and they hear him yelling about how cold the pool is. Uh, and she's like, "What are you doing, dude?" And the kids are like, "What?" And he goes, "Oh, this is a swim-up waitress. She was taking our drinks." Uh, and she's like, "It's obvious that he was up to no good." And Ellen's like, I can't even believe this. This is, you got to be kidding me. And even Rusty and Audrey are like, man, dad, this is, uh, this is it. You ruined it all. And then what happens is, I guess Clark, like, uh, says goodbye to her. And she says, well, uh, sorry. And, uh, like, she, I mean, she's got to be like, you got to be kidding me, right, dude? Like, uh. And then he goes to buy back to his family. He apologizes to Rusty, maybe to Audrey, but uh, 
And they say, go, geez, go apologize to mom. And I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine his apology. So she, she's, of course, upset. Uh, and I guess he gives some sort of a somewhat genuine apology or whatever. But I, I can't believe that. But I'm just trying to think of how they move the story forward. So he must have given her enough of an apology that she was like, okay. Uh, but I, I guess uh, I'm like, man, really? Uh Maybe, uh, oh, and then I think they end up getting in the pool. Like, uh, yeah, that's what happens. Like, he gives her enough of an apology that she says, well, uh, if you want to get in the pool and hold hands with someone, why not me? And then he's in the pool. She jumps in and yells, that's cold. And then that kind of sig- signals, yeah, that the story can move forward. And the kids are like, oh, okay. Uh, some tension is relieved. Then I believe the next scene is them like going into California or whatever and approaching Wally World. And it's like morning, and there's a uh, music from Chariots of Fire is playing, and they're like, the, the parking lot's empty. And Clark says, I'm going to park closest to exit. He's like, why am I doing that, Russ? He goes, because we'll be the first people to leave when the traffic's bad at the end of the day. And then they run across the parking lot. And it's like this, you know, the families reach the Mecca and everyone's happy. And it's like so, and then they get to the thing and there's like the sign with this automated moose. And it says, hey, the park's closed for refurbishment. And the, the clerk's like, you got to be kidding me. And they're like, no. Like the moose says, sorry, folks. Uh, you know, this is Marty Moose or whatever. Marty Moose. Uh, also at different parts, they sing the Marty Moose fan song. But uh, so they, they says, yeah, just sorry. Park's closed for whatever, two or three more weeks, a whole summer for refurbishment. And, you know, anyone that's gone to a theme park and their favorite ride's closed, you kind of feel like that. But uh, this time the whole park's closed. And Clark's like, you know what? Like, I'll just go talk to somebody. There's no way. We drove here. I'll explain it to someone and they'll let me in. And then we see John Candy is the one uh, who's a famous comedic actor uh, in the 80s and 90s. uh, And he says kind of like, sorry, folks, there's a moose out front should explain to you, but the park's closed. And they're like, well, yeah, no, we got to get in. And then uh, he says, no, 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 the park's closed. We can't let you in. And it, it gets to the point where Clark says, no, no, we're coming into the park no matter what. And you're going to be our, you're going to take us on a tour of the park without a choice, even though you might get fired. And so then we see them uh, like uh, trying to pretend they're happy and riding all the rides. And they kind of do have some high points. uh and they ride all rides. Then, of course, the, uh, I guess they only had one person working that morning. But by the time the afternoon comes, they find out, uh, which I guess this has become, I don't know if it happened in the second movie, but it happens in the third movie where all the authority figures come. And they see, you can't come to this park and, you know, force us to open it. Uh, this one guy riding all the rides, you know, we like, uh, you know, it took cost electricity and stuff. It just so happens that this character, based on Walt Disney, like uh, Wa- like Walty Wally or something, uh, Roy E. Wally, I think uh, he comes because he's got got to see. I can't believe his family snuck got into my park and rode the rides. Uh, like he's so outraged, and then he says, "What do?" 
And then I think it's Ellen at first who says, can we explain to you what's happening with reasonable people? Uh, and like Clark kind of tells her, he's like, have you ever gone on a family? He goes, I can't believe the park was closed. And I guess, well, yeah, we could close it sometimes. Uh, and he goes, well, have you ever gone on a family vacation? He goes, yeah, to Florida. And he goes, what if Florida was closed? They can't, and he goes, we can't close the whole state. Uh, they don't do that. And he goes, well, what if it happened? And he goes, well, it's a pretty miserable trip, so I can see what you're saying. And then all is well. Then they all ride the rides together. And I think that's just how the movie ends, like with Holiday Road, like them riding the rides, like Walty, Roy E. Wally, John Candy. And then we kind of see this, like, postcards and uh, scenes from the whole movie with all the uh, performers. Uh, and everything from Holiday Road. So I guess that was the movie, yeah. And it was like just a movie I watched a lot as a kid. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and now I'll probably watch it soon and see if it stands up. But if you've seen it lately, let me know. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely a movie if you're younger that you might want to check out uh, to see if you enjoy it. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and good night. All right, hey, everybody, this is Scoots, and this is a episode, a style of episode called Tale of the Tape. Uh, this is a style of episode called Tale of the Tape where I try to remember the plot of a movie that supposedly had a big impact on my life, and those always kind of go uh, interesting because they say, wait a second, how did this movie that changed my life, uh, what happened in that movie? And this one also has the uh, potential for me to talk about some of the sequels uh, to the movie just because uh, I don't know if I'll do it. I don't think I would do a tale of the tape of the sequels. And, I, and this is the la- I think it's the last big kid movie I saw as a kid when I was older, like a mid kid. I don't know what you call that. Uh, I wasn't quite a tween yet. I guess technically I may have been a tween. I still played with toys, uh, which, I mean, I don't think there's any age that kids should stop playing with toys. Uh, no, I mean, I still watched Saturday morning cartoons and played with toys. So, so the movie we're going to be talking about tonight is called uh, uh, Runners, uh, Runners of the, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I guess that's not that bad a word, Raiders. And it's a movie featuring Indiana Jones. I think it came out in the 80s, but again, in my mind, uh, and those of you that listen to the podcast since the whole, the whole podcast since the beginning, you'll have to indulge me because some of this might be, I don't know if it can be repetitive when I, you know, <laughs> when I don't remember it, but uh, this was a big, big moment in my life. Uh, now, I didn't see Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark in the movie theater. So it wasn't a big in my movie theater going life, uh, but it was a big, like a huge moment. Um, and really one of those just unforgettable moments in my life uh, where my mind was literally blown, my childhood mind. And so I'll set that up, then I'll talk about what I can rem- remember about the movie and maybe its sequels, depending on our time. So, okay, so I'm the oldest of six kids. Um and I don't know if all six kids, I guess one of my brothers probably would have been a baby or two of them would have been young. But my car, my brother, Carl, my sister, Sheila, they're only, uh, I think, just under two years younger than me. And so traditionally, the three of us, you know, we we're closer in age uh, than my brother, Ted, is, uh, I don't know, a few, like a few years younger than me than that. 
uh, and then my next siblings. But so this was when those kids were. T- I don't think Ted was a toddler. Ted the toddler. Uh, but so, um, uh, let's see. So we would get up on Saturdays. This is a very, in a very, uh, uh, idealized thing. We would eat cereal and we would watch cartoons. Uh, my, like, and, and when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have streaming services, but there was three or four, probably three, maybe two or three TV channels coming in over the air. I don't know if we had cable or not. It didn't really matter because the, the broadcast networks kind of dominated Saturday morning cartoons. And Saturday morning cartoons were a really big deal. Not just to kids. I think it was a pretty big industry. I guess I wonder if there's any uh, the history of Saturday morning cartoons. I guess I could do another episode about that because I don't want to get too caught off on a tangent. But they usually ran... From somewhere around eight in the morning till eleven or ten, maybe from seven to ten, like usually a two or three hour block of cartoons. And as you, uh, as the day wore on, uh, the probably the quality, and you'd probably change channels depending on what your favorites were. And again, we'll go into that. But so we used to, we were, you know, hardcore Saturday. That was part of our Saturday morning for years and years and years. And a big part of the podcast, obviously, is a foundation for me. Uh, but so then what would happen is, because, uh, you you know, kids like, even back then, kids love screen time. It's just, I don't know if it's because of whatever. I don't want to get into the anthropology side of it. But we love screen time, even though it was a tube. We called it tube time. And it was, so as the Saturday morning cartoons wore down, we weren't allowed to watch WWF, which is now WWE, which I think came on after the Saturday morning cartoons. My dad it was very against that. I don't think from a moral or a philosophical standpoint, just as like a, just from a logistical standpoint, because then we like me and my brothers and maybe my sister, we would start enacting. Uh, what was going on in the shows. Uh, so it was more of a child management thing. And at some point, we would usually have chores or other things to do, uh, depending on the day, or we would go play. But after watching Saturday morning cartoons, transitioning to play is not easy. And you always kind of felt forlorn, like, oh, I wish there was another hour or two of cartoons for us to watch. Oh, and I guess we did have cable because, okay, so, and I talked about this in my life with HBO a, a, a bit, which is an episode that came out and was rebroadcast uh, like a, a little while back. Uh, so I guess I don't need to talk too much about HBO, but so during, so, okay, so let me talk about the Saturday morning cartoon part. So usually a Saturday morning cartoons ended, you had a decision to make uh, because that's when like sports came out, like golf or uh, football. Uh, or some other sport where you say, well, this isn't, or something else. You say, well, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch cartoons. Uh, you know, it's funny as a consumer now, like that they're basically like, that's it, kids. It's over. Like sometimes they would have something that transitioned. Maybe they, I don't know if they have the new news on the weekends back then. Uh, but yeah, sometime around then, like around somewhere between 10 and, and 11, TV became anti-kid, basically. I mean, I'm not, I don't know, like they said, well, now it's time for adults to get up and s- sit down and sit in front of the TV for a while. 
or it would become a land of waste where it'd just be like, we don't have anything because the sports aren't starting until one. I guess that's when sports start on the East Coast, huh? And so usually as a kid, you, you, and I grew up in central New York, so it might have been rainy. Now, this particular day, it didn't matter. We were literally, I think the blinds were closed. We just got through a good batch of cartoons, and this, we had a free HBO, because every HBO would run a few different times a year. They would have a thing where it's like, oh, HBO's free for two weeks or whatever. And, uh, you know, other things do it even now. And, or maybe it was a free trial, but so we, uh, or maybe we just had HBO then. I talked about that on my life with HBO. There was like a period where my parents were paying for HBO, I guess, cause they were watching it at night. But so we turned on HBO. Now, usually like, uh, there was like a Saturday movie that was not aimed at kids or youth. It was like, uh, and, and, you know, at this age, you're not really interested in that many movies or films. Uh, and we hadn't developed any taste. We were like, to go to, from cartoons to a non-animated movie is a pretty big jump. Uh, but a lot of times we would check or we'd just be running the TV. And I don't know if this is planned out or a spur of the moment. In my memory, it feels like a spur of the moment thing. And I, again, I feel like it was a spring or summer day. It was a Saturday for sure. And we changed it to HBO at either 10 or 11 or 12. And the, like maybe they have like HBO used to have this build up with HBO, the HBO thing and uh, like a movie theater going into a town, launching into outer space, just like the start of a film in a movie theater. Uh, because it was creating a home box office uh, feel. And then it would be, say, you know, special presentation or Saturday movie or whatever, like a feature. And this particular Saturday, the movie that started was a movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And to say we were riveted, well, I can't speak for my siblings, but to say I was riveted and it was like all time and existence stopped for the next two hours or hour and a half. Uh, that would be an understatement. And again, I think I'm just ballparking that I was somewhere around eight, somewhere between us, <laughs> even though I have a child, like I was somewhere between eight and 11 years old or seven and 11 years old. Though I could have been 14 or 18. I don't even know. And I have no idea what year it was. I don't even have the slightest clue. Uh, and I think uh, Raider, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a PG movie. Uh, and again, they kind of supervise it by like, oh, we'll play this PG movie during the day. That's all right. Uh, and I don't know what was going on with my parents. Again, we like were in the basement where our room, like our rooms were all in this basement. And in the center of the basement was like a, uh, like a, like a common room where there was a couch and a TV. And if we weren't making too much noise, it was like out of sight, out of mind uh, for my parents. So, and then, and then my parents had their hands full, or at least my mom did, you know, with, uh, my dad probably was doing yard work or something. And then my mom had three real little kids to deal with. So we were there, we were riveted from the moment this film started till the moment it ended. And I'll talk about after it ended first before I get into trying to remember the plot because I can just remember being shocked in the most positive way of where this film had just taken me. It was the first time I saw 
a movie like this. I don't think I'd seen any Star Wars movies, so I'd wanted to. And I'd probably seen some grown-up movies, but never something like this that was just targeted right at the, as an adolescent youth, you know, or pre-adolescent, whatever age, like a Saturday morning thriller or serial was what they were trying to recreate with that film. And that, it, like, I could tell that it was just such high quality and the story was great, the acting was great, the action, the, the sets, the set pieces... And maybe I'd heard about it, like, because it would have obviously already been in the movie theaters and probably some of my friends or kids in my class had seen it. There was probably already, yeah, there was already toys and stuff. I didn't have any toys, but I remember playing with some of the toys because they think their toys were different. Uh, their action figures were a little bit different. A lot of them had, uh, I don't know, like, uh, but anyway, so I didn't have any of the toys, so... It was all new to me other than some of the marketing that might have touched me. And I just remember leaving my house in the days and it was like, it was nice outside and it was really sunny. And I remember actually being in a daze, like being like, holy cow. And then the, the, the kids that lived across the street from us, uh, were our friends, uh, or, well, what, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, there was a brother and sister that was, like, my age, Dave, and his sister, Aaron, that was a year older. And then Brian, that was a little bit, like, the same age as my brother, Ted. And I remember seeing Dave uh, and uh, saying, holy cow, we just watched this movie. Like, I can't believe what we just saw. And then wanting to live out the movie and reenact it and probably doing that. Or me and my brother and sister probably doing that. And I think it's like instructive because it was like one of those moments I wanted to keep with me, even though it was transient and it was already gone. Like as a child, I wanted to carry that moment with me and hold on to it as long as possible, which is probably like a, a good lesson. Like it was like that that movie took me on such a journey and was so it impressed me in such a way that I just didn't want to let go of that experience right away. And again, this would be like a couple of years after that, where I was old enough to go to the movies by myself, which is probably too young, but like, uh, and that's when I had that summer where I was seeing like a bunch of movies over and over and over again, because I could pay for it myself because I had a paper route and it was only like two bucks or two fifty. Uh, but I just remember it literally changed my life. It's like, I can't believe just like the first time I read really good fiction. It was like, I cannot believe this experience that was just provided for me that I was just taken on by this thing that I totally underestimated. So, okay. So let's go through the movie, I guess, of what I can remember about it. So Raiders of the Lost Ark stars Harrison Ford and uh, that's who it starts out with, um, and I'll already be uh, not remembering much. So I'm pretty sure it has, like, I don't know if this is what a cold open is, but it opens already in action, but not high action, in mystery. Uh, and they don't show Indiana Jones's face, I don't think, for a little while. Like, there's a slow build where he's adventuring with a bunch of other people, making his way through kind of a jungle setting uh, into a temple. And, I mean, I think another thing that's looking back on it is a very, uh, like, uh, problematic culturally that he's, like, taking 
Yeah, it, but but I mean, it's I, I know it's fiction, but I'm just thinking as a kid, you didn't have that context to be like, uh, should we really be rooting for Indiana Jones? And I mean, I guess he's a professor of antiquities, so you'd say, well, doesn't that balance it back out? Uh, so eventually, first you just see that he has like a leather jacket, a uh, hat, uh, he's got his like a... Uh, his trusty like a thing that he uses to swing on his like uh like uh like his diva we'll call it where he, he devos it good and like uh, I don't know how soon we realize what he he doesn't like um is that oh yeah that's not yet uh, I don't think. But so he and a couple of companions are like adventuring into this temple and then he has to overcome these different, uh, like, uh, uh, booby things, uh, booby steps, uh, as we, like a data, I don't think data would even say that, uh, from Goonies, but so he goes into the temple, he loses some of his companions with one gets lost, uh, one disappears. Oh no, no. Okay. So he loses one, I think. Uh, then he gets like, he gets, he, he has to, they have to jump or swing over, uh, something, like, uh, and, and he does it, the other guy does it, and, and uh, he says, uh, and Indiana Jones says, hey, can, can, give me my turn to swing across on my Devo, and the guy says, boink, and he takes off. And you kind of see, like, uh, this combination of adventuring and uh, deduction, at least, uh, like, uh, that's like uh, he's like a bit of a mystery solver, too. Uh, and eventually he overcomes that obstacle. Then he catches up. He finds another uh, booby thing, and he realizes, oh, the other guy went to the big farm through this uh, portal. Uh, so he gets through that one. And there was just so many layered on on top of one another that as a kid you're like, holy cow, does this really exist? Like, this would be so cool. And as like a kid, like a story has stakes right away, like uh, big stakes uh, for for the hero and uh, the hero's sidekicks, which, uh, you know, they said, well, we'll prefer to visit the big farm uh, instead of uh, hanging with Indy. Or the one guy said, well, I'm going to go ahead of you and leave you behind. And so then eventually he gets by one thing and then he has to uh, go across this path and he says, oh, this is impossible. I have to run, I think. Uh, and then he gets this golden idol and uh, then he even has to like weigh stuff out. And this is, you know, been in like there's been Simpsons episodes about it and everything. And he's trying to figure out how to do it. And then he thinks he's successful but really, he triggers this part, and this is like in the, on the Disneyland ride, even. And then this giant, uh, like, uh, like again, you see, was this real? Did this any? And I don't know. Historically, did this kind of stuff exist? But like this ten or twenty foot diameter, like, but like a sanded down boulder rolls after him. He has to run out. Uh, and it chases him out, and he's like, you know, again, again, it's like high adventure. And then he gets out, and it's like, oh boy! Like he, uh, he's made it. He's like accomplished his victory. And then he heads down to uh, meet up with his buddy. And I think you see his buddy. He's like waiting in a um, a seaplane. 
and then you see Indiana Jones again, and he gets caught by uh, his uh, his like uh, his the anti Indy anti Indy, I guess. For some reason, I usually remember his name, but right now I can't. Uh, but he says, uh, uh, like, he's waiting there, uh, and he's actually kind of, like, co-opted some indigenous people to, like, corner Indiana Jones, some, like, warriors. And he says, hey, give me the, like, title. And there is a famous line that says, like, and I don't know the line exactly, but he says, hey, you know, there's nothing you could possess, Dr. Jones, that I can't take away or something. So you get the idea this is, is a competitor. It kind of, uh, it's so strong at the beginning that I guess, like, and it's so impress- impressive that, it, like, even though he plays a part in the later mo- like, later part of the movie, you almost want him, uh, I don't know, I guess there's a thirst for me to have more of him. Oh, I just heard Indiana Jones say his name in my brain, but I couldn't hear what he said. Because now I can think of his uh, Moriarty, but it's not Moriarty. But a very similar type relationship, like I can outsmart you. So he takes it. Then Indiana Jones says, he makes a run. He says, well, I might as well get out of here, at least with my stuff. Uh, and he heads out uh, to, to uh, get away. Uh, then he goes to the seaplane. We realize that the the person that flies the seaplane has a forest friend, a swamp friend, actually. Or no, in this case, like a, a friend from the jungles uh, that believes in constriction, a pet constriction pet. Uh, and Indiana Jones says, I don't like those things. And the guy says, it's my pet, man. Like, but then they take off. They just barely get away. And even as a kid, you say, wow, that's how you open a movie, man. Holy moly. Like, wow. And then you see like a little serialized thing where they think the movie opens, but they also show Indiana Jones traveling on a map, which was cool. And so there's that. Uh, Then uh, now I'll I'll get mixed up (laughs) because... Uh, you think there's two different sets of scenes. Uh, no, I guess there's next, the next scene, maybe there's a transition scene, but then we see a college, uh, I don't know, is this like the 1920s, I'm guessing? Uh, uh and then or 1930s, I don't know. I'm not, you know, history, nothing's my strong suit except for lulling, soothing, creaky dulcet tones. Uh, but so we see, again, now we see Professor Jones. So he's like a button down now. He's got like a blazer with leather patches on the elbows, uh, glasses. Is he, you know, he, he looks more down to earth, but obviously he's very handsome. You say, oh boy, is this guy handsome? And he's kind of talking again about uh i guess like artifacts and stuff i can't remember he's like a professor of archaeology i guess yeah archaeologist and a professor of antiquities uh then uh he he, he class ends and this guy's waiting for him uh who's like uh a little bit not quite a mentor type of figure uh but he uh says uh and I want to say this guy's name is Llewellyn, but I'm not positive about that at all. 
Uh, but that name popped into my head, and he says, "Hey, man, let's talk. How things go? Oh well, I got busted by, but you know, the jerk face. Uh, oh yeah, totally." And then I think he says, hey, like, uh, there's a couple people from the State Department or something. I don't know. There's, like, a weird thing where he says, yeah, like, uh, the State Department's here. They want to talk to you. Or we could use your advice on something. And then they, like, have this meeting. And I guess we start to see, like, some of his venturing supplies. We see his office and stuff like that, uh. And then the people from the State Department are there, and they say, hey, uh, we, like, uh, we're dealing with, the, like, uh, you know, the the, 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 the the worst of the worst. Uh, and he says, oh, like, uh, and he goes, yeah, them. Uh, and he goes, oh, boy. And he goes, like, A-X-I-S? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, okay, uh and he says, what's go? What's up? And they go, have you heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, and he says, of course I heard of it. It's like, uh, like uh, that's the Ark where the Ten Commandments were held, but it's also rumored to have all these powers. And, uh, like, uh, that it could be, like, used to, like, to, 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 to use in a non- like, they could unleash a lot of power that's not, like, good or that someone could use. And they say, yeah, we're thinking they want to use it as a uh, WAR. What's it good for? Absolutely something in this case. Do you think that's possible? And he says, yeah, I mean, if, uh, probably. Look at these pictures I have. Uh, and they say, well, where would you find it? And he goes, well, uh like, I think I'd have to find it, uh, like, uh, out there, somewhere out there beneath the sun and stars. And they say, what? And he said, never mind. Sorry, Scoots just slipped in a five reference. And he says, I think, like, uh, I don't know. And they say, well, we heard uh, that they're doing this dig in Egypt. Uh, would you look into it? And he goes, well, first I'd have to look into something else. And then I think there maybe there's some transition scene, but then we get some scenes with Karen Allen and uh, those that, that are amazing. She's having she works somewhere high up in the mountains, maybe the Himalayas. I don't even know. She runs a bar, and she's having a drinking contest. Apparently, she can like hold her own like against anybody. So she's having a drinking contest with a, like a gentleman that's much bigger than her, and they're gambling. And then, uh, like it's it's like you see kind of that she's an adventurer too, but she see maybe does she have sad eyes? Uh, but she has a victory, and she, she's, like, happy, like, at this point. Like, she's like, this is my place. Maybe I have, like, some sad eyes, but I'm also happy running my place here. And she has her community. And then who rolls in uh, but uh, this dude in a black uh, raincoat, uh, and he's, like, also, like, he's, he's kind of representative and again, I guess they layered these antagonists. Uh, I don't know. There's one, two, maybe there's three kind of representative antagonists, or is there two? I, I can't remember off the top of my head. And then smaller antagonists. But uh, 
he's he comes in. I have no idea what his name is. Uh, and he says, uh, hi. Uh, and you can already sense. I mean, this guy exudes not like antagonism, but in like a subtle, like sour way. And a lot of people excuse themselves and he's kind of spending time walking around and he says, yeah, I heard you have, like, I'm looking for this thing that you used to find this other thing or something. Oh, we also learned that Karen Allen's father was an adventurer as well. I forgot about that part. Uh, Cause that's kind of, then they see, they, she said, they say, we think your father left it behind. He was supposed to be working for us or something. And she goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he says, I think you do. And she says, I don't know what you like. I don't. Uh, and uh, he says, you, I think you do. And she says, well, I think I don't. Uh, and he says, well, I think I'm going to close your place down for business then. Uh, and uh, like uh, gently, like write you a strongly worded letter. I'm going to sit down and take this pen and write a strongly worded review of your restaurant and pub and put it out on the door because they didn't have Yelp back then. And she says, why would you do that? You're not even a customer. And he says, well, that's what I need to do to, to teach you. Like, otherwise you could tell me about this uh, artifact I need to find. Now, somehow she either had it on her or like something and then all this trouble starts, and then Indiana Jones shows up. Uh, and the sound effects, that's the other thing that stuck out to me. Like, I, I've seen this in the theater a few times, too, as an adult. Uh, it's just, like, the level of sound effects, and, and, you know, realistic or not, just the way what they add to the film. Uh, but so she is starts to dance, you know, they, she says, no, I'm taking the pens and paper away from you. Then Indiana Jones shows up, uh... And they have this whole thing where they're like trying to write everything. And he says, all my minions write na nasty reviews of this pub and restaurant. Uh, and they almost lose uh, like the the um, artifact. Uh, then he tries to grab it. And he actually like, uh, he like had dipped, he put his hand like, uh, in, in, no, it had fallen in ink. Uh, then he put his hand on it to grab it. Uh, and it was like, like, like the real ink, like the stuff that doesn't come out. I mean, without a lot of wash. Uh, so he was holding in his hand, thinking he was going to get away with it. And Indiana Jones takes it away. And they say, oh, these letters were just a distraction. So you could take this artifact also, maybe Indiana Jones had already come and she had kicked him out already, uh, and then he came back. I can't remember because then he they all leave because uh, they chase him away. Because uh, they said you didn't just hear your guy called for dinner, but he had had he had picked it up with the ink on it, so he had actually had a version of it on his hand in, in ink stained in ink. Yeah, then Indiana Jones says, "Hey, sorry about the time, you know, like." Uh, like, uh, I, like, I thought, you know, I didn't bring money for our date. And then I like, and she goes, yeah, well, forget the whole thing. And they say, uh, okay, well, uh, remember like, and they say, well, okay, anyway, what do you want? You're, you, you know, I'm frustrated with you. And he says, well, I need that. You know, your dad was looking into something and I need to look into it. And she says, well, we'll look into it together. Partners, uh, or something like that. And then they fly to Cairo, I believe, uh, all as a group. 
or the two of them. Uh, but so they go there. I think that's where they go. But they go to meet uh, Indiana Jones has a friend there uh, played by John Reese Davies. Uh, uh, John Reese Davies plays his friend uh, Sala. So uh, they go there and they meet up and uh, he says, what are you looking for? And he says, yeah, this is what I'm looking for. And he says, okay. And then we realize that there's somebody else, uh, why, like there's multiple people watching for Indiana Jones. Uh, and we see Saul has already figured that out. And he says, hey, this guy was trying to give you uh, sour grapes. And he could, Indiana Jones goes, I hate sour grapes. It makes, gives me a headache. And he goes, yeah, good thing I had helped you with that. Uh, then Karen Allen makes and he says, okay, well, I think I can find, I know they're doing it outside of town somewhere. So we'll go over there. And he goes, okay, let me just, uh, let me just have an action sequence or something. He goes, maybe I'll go down to the market. And then we see Karen Allen that uh, comes out and she looks beautiful. And so we kind of have this romantic moment, uh, and he says, oh boy. And, and she says, oh boy, you're, you know, don't, you know. If you like it, put a ring on it. Uh, and he goes, okay. Uh, he goes, let's go for a walk or something. They go for a walk, and then this is great. This is one of the more famous uh, action comedy sequences. And again, you get the sense that this is a movie that does not take itself too seriously. It's a serious movie, but it use, also uses a lot of comedy and high quality acting with, you know, comedic acting. Because there's like this action sequence, like in the market and in and and in, 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 around this town, around the city, and Karen Allen and Indy get separated, and they have to deal with a bunch of people uh, that are hired to take, you know, to to. Uh, oh, actually, they get away with her. I didn't even think about that. I guess that's what happened. Yeah. And they, then uh, Indiana Jones just barely gets away. Like he kind of uses, there's just like a lot of action comedy. So he can't find her. Uh, then him and Solomon meet again and they say, okay, well, I think what happens is they say, let me get to the bottom of this. Let's go figure out what they're burying or uncovering first. And we... uh like he says, this is actually the only time we're going to be able to find it. Is we got to go down to where the dig site is. We need this thing, and we got to translate this because uh, they think it was like a headpiece. The the, the 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 item that Karen Allen's character Marion had, uh, like it reflects the light. So he says, okay, we got to go down now. Meanwhile, Marion's become the guest of of all people, Belloc at Belloc. Uh, who's a, Indiana Jones's rival and working for not, not good people. And so she says, you're working with these not, this is like, a, you know, not good. And he goes, well, you know, highest bidder, baby. And she goes, that's a mistake. And he goes, well, that's a mistake I'm willing to make uh, to get to the bottom of this. Where's, it, where's the thing in Indiana Jones? And she goes, you'll never find them. And he goes, well, we're trying to get to the bottom of something because we had this thing with the ink on the guy's hand and we still can't get it to work right. Oh, and that's the difference. So then Indiana Jones, they have both sides, like only one side printed on the guy's hand because, you know, it was only on one side. 
So they realize, oh, they're using the long, wrong size staff. Uh, so then Indiana Jones goes down. Um, is this what happens? Uh, yeah, I guess he goes down there. And uh, again, he has to deal with some things that he doesn't necessarily like. He has to overcome that. Uh, then he finds the... Uh, Huh, maybe I may be doing this out of order, but that's pretty typical. But he goes down, he says, well, let me get this thing free. Or let me find out if the Ark of uh, the Covenant's down here. I wanted to say there was one more scene, but I think that, yeah, I guess there's like two more locations. So he finds it. Uh, and then I think it, uh, Solid joins him, and then they like... Uh, they start moving it, and I think they eventually start raising it up, and then they say, hey, thanks, uh, you're going to stay down here. And then in- Indy has to get out of there, which I think he finds his way out somehow. Uh, but again, they say, oh, boy, I have to overcome the things I'm not comfortable with. Uh, but they thought he was stuck there. So he gets out, and I, I don't know, Sala... Maybe that's it for him in the movie, I guess. Uh, can't remember if he comes back in the movie. But basically, then Indy says, okay, they got Marion. Maybe they have Sala and they have the Ark. Uh, now i got to figure stuff out. But I think he says, well, first things first, got to rescue Marion. Uh, in this case, made Marion. And then she says, I don't need rescuing. He goes and finds her tent and... Uh, then they say, she says, okay, let's get out of here. And she's the one that does that. Then they have to, um, then they get on this thing with this biplane or like a plane, well, not a biplane, but a single winged plane, which is very advanced for the time that the not good team has. And that's when there's all sorts of action, like, uh, that actually the stunt show in, uh, Florida has, uh, so there's this big action sequence, tons of cool stuff. And like a like a whole thing of like uh uh you know one upsmanship and him Indiana Jones trying to outsmart and outdance and all that. And then I think right when at least in my memory serves, like right when they're about to get away, uh something else happens. I can't remember. Uh, I guess maybe I'm missing a sequence and maybe some of this is out of sequence, but like they don't, they don't manage to get away. And Bellic, uh, and maybe that dude in the, the black raincoat and maybe one other, I'm pretty sure there's one other, or maybe it's just Bellic, uh, uh, says, nope, you're busted. B-U-S-T-E-D, busted by the antagonists and, uh, so sorry. And then they uh, say, okay, you're going to come with us because we're going to actually test this out to see if we can use this Ark of the Covenant as a WAR. What's it good for? And I think Indiana Jones tries to reason with Bellick. He says, listen, man, you're talking about like a, like a spiritual item can't be used as for, for what's it good for. It's good for doing good. And if you do this, it's just not a good idea. Like... Uh, and he says, you know what, I work I work for this, and, you know, we believe in, use, you know, like, uh, 
we're co-opting spiritual forces uh, for our own means. Uh, and Indiana Jones says, that's a bad idea, man. So then they go to this remote remote location where they have all these like lights set up and energy boosters and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, Indy says, you, again, you're making a big mistake. Uh, and they say, well, I don't think we are. And he says, okay. And then they set it up and they, they kind of like... Uh, like Indian and Marion and maybe Sal are there. And Bellic is like, gets all dressed up, uh, like, cause he says, well, I have to be in a, a fancy headdress and stuff to co-opt this energy. And it becomes this great build. Uh, and he's like, like almost like he's weaving spells. Cause he's like reading all sorts of stuff, I think. And then there's like this slow build up. uh, and then Indiana Jones realizes, okay, like, uh, he's, he's still deducing or, or unpuzzling one last mystery, I think. And he says, okay, don't like close your mouth, your eyes and your nose, uh, and don't open them for any reason because, like, uh, that'll counter the, uh, spiritual WAR try. And because he says, you're unleashing something, you know, power you don't understand, which ends up happening. And then Belloc releases his power. And there's a lot of special effects. It's a bit like all, all so they had all these, can- they ended up, they, 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 for some reason, they were also collecting candles. So, so all their candle collections got melted, which is frustrating to all of them. And they say, booty, boo, boo, man, all our candle collections got melted. So we're really unhappy. And so it was uh, like, we were going to use those as part of it. And, and uh, they all go away. They, they're so frustrated. They say, we're going to the big farm where we could have. I don't think they were going there, though. They're probably not going to the big farm, if you know what I mean. And then, uh, like, Indy and Marion and maybe Sal are left and they get away. And they say, okay, well, let's bring this thing back Uh and then they return, and I think they say, he says, I don't know, maybe we should go our separate ways. I don't know how they end things, but he ends up, like, uh, giving the Ark to the U.S. government to just, I guess, in another piece of, like, a think, a think piece or a comedy piece, uh, they put it in this giant bureaucratic warehouse, and they just store it away in the middle of nowhere, uh, that's like, oh, this is this great discovery, and it just gets put away to never be used or discovered again and forgotten. And I think that's how it ended, and this is coming soon, you know, another movie. And then the movie after it was called uh, Indiana, and I guess the movie started as Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then it became Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So then the next movie was called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Achu. And that movie was the first movie that had a rating of PG-13. And I remember that just because it was a big, big deal back then. And I don't know if it impacted the box office movie positively or negatively. Uh, but uh, that movie was a little bit different. Um, uh, some Again, some of the main cast was not there. And I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'd have to rewatch it to kind of get a sense of, like, is that movie good or not? Uh, and I, so I'm, I'm curious to rewatch it. I mean, I, I think it was not quite on the same level as the first movie, but again, how are you going to um, capture that again? 
uh, I mean, I think it had some interesting parts and, and stuff like that. And, but uh, so I guess I can't really talk about it other than I remember that I wasn't allowed to see it because it was PG-13. I was definitely not 13. I don't know. I might have been even 11 or 12. Uh, I wish I knew what ages that was. Uh, but so like, but I just remember that it was a big deal. And that all the kids were talking about, especially kids uh, whose parents let them go see PG-13 movies or like, oh, I'll take you to the movie. Because up until that time, there was just G, PG, and R. And PG meant you could go, uh, you know, you're supposed to ask your parents, but you could kind of go. And then R was like under 18 or whatever, under 17, not admitted. And then they said, well, we need something. And again, this was the 80s. It was a very different time. Like, uh, I think as uh, we were kind of trying to decide, hey, what are, what are our value systems? And there was a big push at that time for traditional value systems. They said, well, I'm not sure about this new world we're moving into. And so some people, and I don't know if that's what caused this or not. To be honest, I have no idea. But uh that's just my memory of the 80s saying, well, we need something that's a little bit more vanilla. We like vanilla and saccharin. Do you have those two things? Like in saltine crackers, we'd prefer a film like that. Or as far as the rate, we can't have, wait, does that have sugar? It, like, you know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's my memory. And then I remember uh, the next sequel, uh, in, what was it called? Uh I don't know. The movie after that, the third movie, had Sean Connery in it. I saw it too many times. Uh, like, one of my friends was, like, we all, the first time we all saw it, we loved it. Then one of my friends was, like, trying to dig into, we, we went to the library because we were so obsessed with, like, the, the cookies that were in the movie. And then we went and saw it again, trying to, like, be like, what does that painting mean? Like, we were all obsessed with, like, the different hidden symbols in the movie which now you could just look up on the internet and stuff. Uh, but there was a lot of hidden symbols in the movie that would pay off later in the film. Uh, and then I, like, so I saw, like, I just saw, it was one of those movies I just saw too many times in a, in too short a period where I just, I don't think I've seen it in a long time. And I don't know if I can. I don't know, maybe something, like, uh, associated with some other thing where I'm like, oh... Uh, so I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I saw that, but Sean Connery always makes everything great. Uh, and Harrison Ford obviously is great in all three movies. Uh, most of the other ch- cast, Denim Elliott, uh, I don't know if he's in all three movies or not. Uh, is that who that is? Yeah. Like, uh, but you know, really good. Uh, I don't know. And again, just a big experience as a kid for me, the first one. And interesting, too, because, like, Steven Spielberg talks about kind of uh, trying to capture that Saturday serial-type feel from, like, Buck Rogers or other stuff. Uh, So it's just, like, the positive echoes of childhood, how it's like, oh, this impacted me somehow and how I, like, uh, viewed the world. And then, I, you know, maybe this led to me making the podcast. And he said, well, you also remembered the movie. like, And I say, yeah, you're right. I totally misremember the movie as well. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that because uh, I enjoyed telling you about it. Uh, good night.
All right, everybody, it's uh, Scoots, of course, I'm here, and I'm ta- tonight I'm going to talk, it's going to be a tale of the tape, and recently, well, it's a few months ago for me, I recorded an episode about a movie theater, so I guess you'll be hearing this a few months after that, but I'm not positive when you'll be hearing this, but I talked about a, this, this second-run movie theater that had, had a huge place in my life. And maybe I've done this movie before, but I, I can't picture it. Uh, I mean, now that I've done over 900, probably recorded like 930 episodes, uh, maybe I have. So maybe, I don't know, maybe this would just be a bonus of me trying to remember. But this also happened with uh, um, Princess Bride where I said, I thought I did this already. But then I said, well, I kind of didn't. But this is like one of the movies that uh, really has a lot of meaning for me. I really love this movie. It's been a few years since I rewatched it. I'm pretty sure I rewatched it since I entered adulthood or sobriety in 2013, but maybe not. I remember watching it pre those days, but on a day when I was just kind of kicking back, uh, I guess taking a break between wedding events for one of my brother's weddings. So I don't know if this was in the turn or the aughts, uh, but uh, so I remember watching this movie then, and I'm pretty sure I've seen it since then. It is rated R, so I'm not sure. Don't worry, though, if you're a kid listening. don't. Oh, boy, don't worry. But I just love this movie, and it is a movie that, uh, I don't know. So, so I guess I'll get into it and see where things go. The name of the movie is uh, it's original Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, as with most movies that I talk about, I have no idea when it came out. It was somewhere between 1987 or 6 and 1992. Though I'm guessing at the end of the 80s, 89, 88 or 89. I do wonder how well this movie stands up. And uh, there are, I mean, I guess the movie is probably, like, there probably are problematic things that I'm not remembering. But the movie is a little bit about race and, and systemic racism. So, uh, like, uh, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder how that's portrayed. I, I just, like, because uh, it's been a long time. So we'll have to see. Uh, like, uh, hopefully, usually the last few times I've rewatched the movie after I've recorded these. I would like to watch it with my daughter. And I don't know where this lands in, like, because uh, I'm not good with dates. But I would, like, if I had to say my personal opinion is, like, this is probably, and maybe, again, it's just memory, but one of Eddie Murphy's best performances and actually where he, he probably doesn't get enough credit for the amount of range that he shows in a movie. And one of the main reasons is he's a little bit, for most of this movie, I don't know, I really, because I can picture it vividly in my mind, he has to do a lot of, uh, he has to have a lot more range, and it's a comedic action role. And I guess for a lot of us, I mean, I know he did Metro, I remember seeing that, I don't remember much about it, but it was like, uh, and I don't know if there was two or three Beverly Hills Cops movies, um, I think I, I was old enough to see two in the movie theater, but one I was definitely not, maybe not even two. Or maybe two they made into a PG-13 movie. But I'm, again, not sure on any of this stuff. 
but a couple of reasons why this movie was a big deal. One, it was R, so I didn't see it for a while. Two, it was a very different Eddie Murphy than the Eddie Murphy of the late 80s and the 90s. Uh, like, he was in 48 Hours, which I think was before this, and it kind of started to show his range. Uh, his character was similar and different in some ways in, in that movie. It showed his confidence. I guess maybe that's part of it is that, it, like, it, like, it was almost, you'd say, you wouldn't use understated in Eddie Murphy especially 80s, early 90s, in a lot of things. But this was almost an understated role comparatively because he, he was just playing a cop. Uh, and, I don't know, I, really, I, I just really think very, very highly of this film. So I'm hoping when I rewatch it, I, like, retain that. And I guess you could check with me before you rewatch it and say, Scoots, should we rewatch it? Is it uh, like, like, especially those of you that are younger that have never seen it, or maybe you're more familiar with uh, the kind of overtop Eddie Murphy comedies of the aughts and then like um, uh, where Eddie Murphy was playing more characters and like makeup based roles and, and, uh, CGI. I mean, this was a very young Eddie Murphy, but a very handsome, suave, uh, but again, understated, casual, suave, I would say, uh, role. And it, uh, I don't know, so skin, like almost like a softer leading man. Uh, I don't know, for me, you say this is the like strangest thing you've ever said, but a very relatable. Uh, and I would say much more like I would put it up against a movie that like uh, was in a similar time frame of a of a cop uh, like in detective investigating, which would be Fletch. And I wonder what I know the Fletch source material we had at work, so I know that's based on a book. I don't know if Beverly Hills Cop was. But uh, this one is much more straightforward, and it's very funny. Uh, but it, it, uh, it, I don't know, it, it's not forcing the humor forward, and it is like a little bit of a social commentary for the '80s, though. I don't know. Again, since I haven't seen it in a while, I don't know how deep about racism and classism. So, so if you haven't watched it, it's a movie called Beverly Hills Cab. It came out in the 80s. That's kind of all I remember. The reason it's, I mean, so, oh, the reasons why it's so important to me. So in, so I saw it in the, uh, I don't know when I saw it, maybe years after it came out because it was R and I was a kid. So it was definitely a no-no. Though now thinking, remembering the movie, I'm, I'm wondering why it was R. Maybe strong language. Maybe I mean, it definitely has some action sequences, but nothing like what a superhero. I mean, there's a superhero movies where I have a lot more stuff going on. I mean, I do know that uh, a lot of super or a lot of the 80s and 90s movies do have a lot stronger language because, uh, like, then no, I, I feel like it's just like holy cow. I don't know, maybe there were some other adult sequences. It's stuff for me to remember. So, okay, so the movie takes place. It opens in, in a very uh, structural way. 
very similar to popular, really well done movies today. It opens uh, very fast, and that's a plus. And it opens getting to know our hero and putting him in a situation. And again, what do they, I forgot what they call those. Uh, I don't know, is it a set piece? But it opens very, very quickly. So Eddie Murphy is is a police officer in Detroit, a detective. I guess he's a, uh, he's a detective. Uh, like, uh, and because uh, I said, well, is he, what is he detecting? But in the beginning of the movie, what he's detecting is uh, people who, like, who would buy a truckload of, uh, uh, what do you call those? Not counterfeit cigarettes. Oh, this was so. This was also a time where everybody smoked. Uh, even I, I don't know if they smoked on screen in this movie. That was already starting to lose traction. But cigarettes were a lot bigger deal, and they had. Uh, they still have a lot of taxes on them. Back then, they probably had less. They don't call them counterfeit. What do you call it when you bring someone smuggled, a cigarette smuggler? So, so he was on, he wasn't, he was, I think he was posing as a cigarette smuggler. And again, none of this may be accurate. So Eddie Murphy was on his own. He was undercover. So he's an undercover detective. And he, so he's pretending to, I think he was pretending to be the seller and he's, I'm sure he was working his way up an organization, right? Because he was trying to get to the bottom of uh, who was buying this or who was selling it. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure he was a seller, but because he's just so, he's so funny, like playing these kind of like roles, I feel like he's improving, like that he's really a detective and he's improving, like being undercover. So he's trying to set up a deal. And he's really close to uh, to making the deal happen and catching catching the 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 the, the smugglers or the smugglees, uh, and it's a whole truck of cigarettes. So, and why would you smuggle cigarettes? You say, and you say, well, taxes. So, I would assume I, I, these were questions that probably came up as a kid that I had to figure out. Um, so if they were in Michigan, maybe the cigarettes were from a state uh, or from Canada where there was less taxes. And they said, well, we could sell these for much lower. Uh, so I guess like maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a tale, maybe there's a message in there. No representation without taxation. Like people, come on, no smoke, no exhalation without some taxation. Um but so I don't remember what goes wrong. I can kind of remember. I, I think he was like, uh, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was just observing because I think he had like a red. So and also talk about being ahead of times. I mean, people say that uh, the old uh, uh, social network was the one that invented wearing hoodies. Uh, like hooded sweatshirts, especially zip-up hoodies. But holy cow, Eddie Murphy was rocking a hoodie sweatshirt through this whole movie. I think in the beginning of the movie, a red one. And then I guess Trading Places is pretty big range. But the, the Trading Places, again, is a little bit... Uh, that just popped in my head because I think that's where he has a red hooded sweatshirt. But he has a blue one or a black one through most of this film. And it also reminds me of Adam Sandler for some reason, because you know Adam Sandler's like constantly casually dressed. Uh, 
And it kind of says, yeah, this is like I get to like I, this is I'm wearing what's comfortable. So I don't know if that was a big deal at the time where like as a lead of this film, I mean, I guess Eddie Murphy really looks stylish, uh, especially in this film, in anything. But so, so well, what I'm saying is like, uh, don't let it, don't get it twisted that Zucker, Zuckerberg was a, in first person wear a hooded sweatshirt of, uh, you know, that fame. It was Eddie Murphy in, uh, uh, was this movie called Beverly Hills Cap? Oh, I forgot to f- fill in. Well, I talked about it in another episode, but why this movie was so important. We'll get back to the sequence. Uh, we'll be back to, to the movie soon. But so the reason it was so important. So where, so by my house was this theater, a Genesee Theater. And I think that's what it was called. Uh, yeah, it was in the, yeah, so Genesee Theater. And it showed second-run movies. And it was by my house. It was also by, in a plaza where we would go a lot is we would go, we didn't go grocery shopping at this plaza, but uh, a couple of things we would go to. There was a bakery there where you could buy uh, individual sized pizza doughs that were kind of like pizzas. They were half baked. And we would, uh, for a lot of birthday parties, we would buy these little pizza rounds and then everybody would get to make their own pizza. And you felt like you did something and it was pretty cool. And then there was a used bookstore and magazine store that uh, we would go to, or at least me, my brother, my, my dad, maybe my sister. And me and my brother would go there and get old mad magazines and cracked magazines. And we would, like, literally, I guess this is, I guess it, maybe did I talk, I guess maybe I talked about that in the episode. One of my happiest memories. And then I think we went there one time with somebody else who said, look at there's adult, there's like uh, magazines that kids aren't supposed to look at right by these kids' magazines. Uh, and they became a little bit distracting because they said, because you could go there. I mean, this was really a used book. And I don't know if they had comics, uh, but we could buy mad magazines from like five to ten years earlier for nothing, including the specials. And it was just the greatest thing. And then we could read those all summer long or all break and cracked. Uh, and a lot of times we didn't even know. We didn't know what half the jokes meant. Sometimes there'd be national lampoons in there. Uh, but those are definitely from older kids. But the, the like they'd be like TV shows that would already been canceled uh, or that we didn't watch, like Magnum P.I., but maybe something like uh, that's canceled that we didn't watch. I don't know, like Falcon's Crest. But also that's where the theater was. And so, I, and I'm positive about this, but, you know, I've never looked it up to find out. But I'm pretty sure that at that movie theater, Beverly Hills Cop was at that movie theater. It felt like for a year. And to me, it's however old I was. I was like, this is the most, got to be the most successful movie in second run cinema of all time because it kind of felt like it was always there. Like other movies would be playing, but they'd have like a 10 o'clock showing on their sign out front and then on their newspaper ad every single week. And of course, cause I couldn't see the movie like uh, that. I guess that was uh, like, it's just always, int- I said, this movie must be amazing. How come not everybody's talking about it? Like this should be on the, they should be leading on the news. 
And for some of you, that might sound over the top, but I'm not kidding. Like, I would have thought, like, they'd be like, yeah, this is, uh, who was that, Dan Rather uh, reporting. And we've got some stuff about oil and uh, other stuff, but we wanted to lead again with the, the Beverly Hills Cop Watch. It is still playing at the Genesee Theater. And, you know, second and first run theaters worldwide. It has generated, you know, billions of dollars and is the most beloved film, but it's still rated R. So kids can't see it one day. When you're old enough to see it, it won't be in the theaters. But, you know, don't worry. Don't vet this thing called streaming. So I just watched a movie that was already the seed, you know, the forbidden fruit. Uh, and when I actually tasted the fruit, it was not a letdown. And I think it was a while. And maybe it was that I saw Beverly Hills Cop 2 first and then saw this movie. And I was like, holy mackerel. And I'm pretty sure on the poster... It's like, oh, and he also had a, like, a, like kind of like a varsity jacket, uh, I think. Um, now that I'm picturing Eddie Murphy, like, sitting on the hood of a car, just looking cool. And I also accept the fact that all this could be wrong. But so, okay, so back to the film. So there Eddie Murphy is. Uh, oh, I almost had his name. I forgot the character's name. It'll be interesting me trying to remember anybody's name. I can hear his, his like, uh, what do they call that? His superintendent or whatever yelling at him. Oh, I almost had it. I think it's three syllables. Uh, well, some of you are already saying, scoots, come on. Uh, Billy? Is that what it is? Billy Rydell? No, that can't be it. Uh, but so, no, Billy, is Billy the, uh, uh, well, anyway, um, so, okay. So he he's trying to make this deal, and then something goes wrong. Something alerts the the non the the the, the smugglers to the fact that he's on the job. And I'm not sure what it is. It wasn't his slip up, of course. It was someone else. Like maybe they're listening in, or maybe. And then he even tries to ham that up, like, uh, and he says, you know, try, almost pulls it off. But then, of course, there's an action sequence. And then we see, okay, whoa, so this movie's funny. And we have a hero, clearly. And our hero is very uh, confident and skilled, but also likable. And there's going to be action. So there's an action sequence with the truck, and he's in the back of the truck. I'm sure there's a car chasing behind and he's trying to defuse the situation, and eventually he does, and he succeeds. But he has to do it, of course, in a way that however he resolves things a lot of times is too over the top. Uh, so however he resolved it or whatever tactic, he uses some tactic, of course, that's not okay with the authority figures. And I'm not exactly sure what it was. But so he goes back to the office. Of course, he's like in with the like regular, like uh, other work, working officers. And you can see that he's popular and, and has like a sense of uh, humor or whatever. Like they say, wow, you're, you're really somebody we look up to. But then his boss is very upset with him. And his boss is like very, yeah, like uses loud words. 
Because, you know, this is, I guess, an 80s trope. It's like, you know, the cop that can't follow the rules but gets it done with style. And th- But this was uh, just, I don't know, like I said, this has had a little bit more range than those tropey movies. Um, and I think it was, I mean, personally, I think it was those softer moments, which gets followed up very quickly. And this, like, inquisitiveness, uh, I think with some other strong... Uh, of these detective comedy performances that I really like, there is no, like, it feels like a blank mask uh, where this character really felt like a human being. And it is because those softer moments, and it is like what happens is he, I think it's what happens, I don't remember. He goes back to his apartment and his buddy's there, or his buddy calls him to get dinner, get some drinks. Like his old friend he hasn't seen in a while. And none of this could be correct. No, I mean, none of this may be correct. But, it's a, like, at some point, I'm pretty sure he gets there with his friend. Oh, wow, I just remembered somebody. You know who's in this movie? Is uh, Oh, my gosh. Uh, holy cow. I just remember one of the characters in the movie, I'm pretty sure is uh, one of our friends from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Uh, I'm now I'm 99.9% positive. But not 100%, because there is two sets of villains, uh, and then there's the villains, uh, Heavy or whatever, who is... Uh, ooh, we'll get to it. I'll look it up on Wikipedia to, to, to resolve some of these questions later. Okay, so 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 you get getting so distracted. So he meets up with his friend, or, or yeah, he runs into his friend. I think his friend like is at his house, or his apartment, or they go out to dinner. And his friend says, uh, "They said, man, I haven't seen you in a while. What, you know, what'd you show up for?" And his friend says, "Well, you know, I miss you, man, and I love you." And his friend, now he's like. Uh, uh, Axel Foley, a- a- Axel Foley. You know, Bronson Pinchot is in this movie. I just rem- remembered. Okay, so he he says he, so. Axel's the one that like uh, you know became a cop, made something of himself. This is his childhood friend that couldn't get anything right. It's always in trouble. So he says, uh, "What do you got going on, uh, Mike? M- Mikey?" So he says, "What do you got going on?" Uh, and he says, well, look, I found these things uh, when I was working. I think this is what happens. Uh, and he says, you can't do that. you got to bring them back. And they're like, this is the thing. I'm thinking they're German barabons, uh, or ba- That's what I thought they were, barabons, uh, Which is, think of the same thing that happens in the movie Die Hard. But... Uh, but I'm not, I guess we'll have to do that for the holidays. Yeah, I think that's what, like, and I, I thought they were bearer bonds, bearer, bo- bearer bonds, like the bearer of these bonds gets paid. And actually, I think they ha- take place in the Jason Bourne books when I was rereading those. But so he, uh, he says, oh boy, and I don't even know if it happens really fast or it takes a while. But uh, all of a sudden, uh, the door opens, and uh, the, the 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 people that own the bearer bonds say, "Hey, these are our bearer bonds. They belong to our boss." And Mikey you shouldn't have taken them. And it's Jonathan Banks, uh, beloved actor, 
though you you mean you'd be surprised uh you say whoa holy cow so he they say they speak strongly to mikey in the axle and i think uh and he, they get it happens fast, so Axel can't really re- react or something. And then they say, "You're gonna have to come with us, Mikey." And I think it's then Mikey goes to visit the uh, the bit. He goes his his bear his, his bear bond is checked, cashed. Uh, he has his he gets cashed as a bear bond. So then Axel says, well, and they just take off. So he says, what is this? How did these tough guys just show up? And they had the bear. He said, they sent my friend to cash his bond at the big bond bank in the sky. And they say, holy mackerel. I can't believe any of this. He says, he says like, uh, so I think what happens is, you know, his interest is peaked. And again, these are the small moments when he's with his friend and then he just says, something's not right here. You know, in addition to the fact, he said, well, my friend stole this stuff from, I don't even know who these people are. And maybe he can't find his friend at first, but I'm pretty sure they say, well, you're bringing, bringing this into the big farm. And so basically, he, I think he goes and meets with his boss. Uh, and he says his boss was already mad. And I, I don't know if he asked for permission or, or he just says, you know what, my, you know, my friend w- went to the big bank in the sky, so I got to take a break. Uh, I'm going to take a vacation. But his boss is already on to something. He says, well, just don't like, don't go do anything brash. Uh, he says, well, no, I'm going to take a break or go to California. And he calls, uh, I think he calls his friend Jenny. Um, wait, can't think of the, it'll, it'll come to me, but, uh, and I don't know if he calls her or just goes there, but there's a couple sequences, of course, that I'm going to remember out of order, but they're so cool. So basically he, the next thing you know, he's in, um, he's in, uh, Beverly, like Los Angeles. And again, and this is the eighties, uh, so if you think Hollywood and Los Angeles and Beverly Hills was la la land now in the post aughts uh, back then it was a legend. I don't know. There's just a lot of mystique, especially with Beverly Hills. So you see, like he goes to Beverly Hills. That's where his friend worked at a warehouse of an art dealer, where his friend Jenny works. And at first he's just trying to do, to figure out. He's just trying to get to the bottom of it, right? Uh, I don't think he's connected all, even all those dots, other than his friend worked there. So he goes uh, to, to uh, Beverly Hills, and he checks. He, he I don't know where he first uh, gets the idea or how he pulls this off. And I'm also not sure where he gets his car from. But at some point, he so he goes and checks into the Hollywood Beverly Beverly Hills Hotel, that's what it's called, right? And he checks in there, and uh, I don't know, there's some, I'm missing some sequence. Uh, and he gets brought in, and he goes into the police station. And he's like, first of all, he's like telling, he gets, I think the first people that take him in are these Taggart and Billy, Billy Tag, Taggart, and uh, oh man. But there's two. There's a young cop and an uh, like an older gruffer cop, uh, 
And they go into the station, and it's like, he's like, holy cow, look at how much funding you have and how fancy the station is. And then he meets, like, the head of the department there, and uh, he basically... At first, I think he tries. At first, I think he like pulls a fast when he says, "Yeah, I'm gonna help, and I'm like on a case, uh, so I'm working." But maybe he calls his boss, and uh, yeah, like, but immediately within five minutes, the all two of the three main characters take a liking to him, and the third character, still a little bit gruff, until uh, he sees his like Axel has to like win him over. And I guess it just shows a lot of echoes of the current times uh, uh, because it's like it, it kind of ingrained in the system, I guess. And, and uh, like I say, well, shouldn't you just treat me with respect? Uh, eventually he's like, first, maybe first he says he's just on vacation. And they say, oh, okay, well, uh, uh, okay, well, um, enjoy your time then. Sorry about the mix-up. Also, we talked to your boss, though, and he says if you're investigating anything, don't bother coming home. So I guess what I would call that sequence, like, so there's a couple sequences. There's, like, uh, the shine of L.A. and then the fanciness of the hotel, and then there's a lot of comedy with him checking into the hotel and, uh, like, whatever, all the over-the-top uh, Hollywood, uh, Beverly Hills, uh, Bel Air stuff. Then there's him dealing with the problematic police department and uh, overcoming that. And then, of course, he becomes friends, uh, I don't know, pretty quickly, I think. Uh, uh, like, I don't know. I'm trying to just think of, like, what makes things change, like, what shifts things. But at first, there's, like, some skepticism, and they're very authoritative figure, problematic authority figures, I'd say. Then there's a sequence, either before or after this, where he's looking. So he meets up with his friend Jenny. Uh, that's when he meets uh, our comic genius, Bronson, of course. And then, uh, uh, so he goes to art gallery, says, hey, let's just catch up. Uh, he drinks an espresso, because uh, they have an espresso. Like, I think it, Bronson runs the... Uh, espresso counter at the art at the cafe at the art gallery and his friend jenny is like the manager he then he meets the, the owner who is this guy victor maitland which i still think is one of the best uh villain names victor maitland and he uh he says okay this like you could tell just by the casting that this guy's like up to no good but, you know, he's acts all pleasant. And then Jenny says, well, nothing. I love working here. Nothing strange is going on at all. And Eddie says, no, there's something I, like I can't put my finger on. And then he says, let me look around. So then he starts digging a little deeper and he gets into the warehouse. And that's where he finds, like, again, smuggling or something like they're smuggling bear bonds and maybe other things in the arts, but he definitely doesn't have any proof. Uh, and also they're following him. Like, so then he constantly has to like, like work with, the, uh, like at some point he, he stops like going against the authority figures. He, he has enough fun with them that he just like gets in their car 
And he started, he, he, again, at first it's like, a, like a, he's kind of like trying to get them to buy into what he, he's discovered, even though he's still on a hunch. And I guess it happens pretty fast, but maybe we'll see when I look up the plot. Uh, and then uh, I guess yeah, there's something, um, there's a big hole because eventually he finds some clue that, you know, Victor Maitland, like not only is Mikey, but there's something else involved. Uh, and so they start to come around on his police work, but they're still doubtful and they don't want him involved. And whatever, and then there's then there's like the big '80s action sequence at the end. I guess there probably is one like action sequence in the middle of the story. There's got to be. Uh, but like at the end, it's like uh, uh, the older cop, uh, the gruffer cop with the mustache, the um, head of the department, is like uh, like uh, he's bought in. Like he says, wow, this is great detective work, uh, but but uh, he's not involved directly. Then there's oh, so there's Judge Reinhold is one of the, he's the plays the younger, uh, what do you call that? Like a green or um, naive uh, Beverly Hills cop. He's an actual Beverly Hills cop. Uh, but, but like, but he's the one that's kind of like trying to soften. The other ones to be like, I think this guy has a point. And, and he's like, uh, his name's Billy. Billy, I think it, he, the other guy's Taggart and he's Billy, but he could be Billy Taggart and the other guy could have a totally different name. But so eventually those three end up, uh, there's some sort of big chase or multiple chases and then they end up at Victor Maitland's mansion and they have to get in there and, like, uh, get to, like, uh, so I guess maybe in the 80s, like, uh, smuggling and that kind of stuff was like, holy cow, it's like a real uh, thing. Oh, but there's, like, also, yeah, now I'm remembering other stuff from the movie They say, like, I can't believe that. Like, uh, so it definitely exposes, like, uh, like uh, embedded problems in our culture. Okay, so let's see what it says on Wikipedia, because uh, that's all I can remember. Oh, so it was produced by Eddie Murphy Productions and Simpson and Bruckheimer. Uh, let's see. Uh, Daniel Petrie Jr. wrote the screenplay. Stories by Danilo Bach and Daniel Petrie Jr. Produced by Simpson and Bruckheimer. Uh, directed by Martin Brest. Uh I'm pretty correct on the uh, poster and the hoodie. Let's see what it says. Uh, trying to see what the poster says. Uh, like the quote, uh, he's been chased, uh, uh, he's been chased, uh, thrown, and busted. Oh, yeah, he gets thrown out of, I think, uh, a bank or a... Uh, Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop on vacation in Beverly Hills. But I want to kind of figure out the stuff that I forgot. Uh, John Ashton, Ronnie Cox, and Steve Burkoff are some of the, and Lisa Eli Bacher. Oh, I forgot about the music. And I don't know if the music, the music is so good, but that might be more Beverly Hills Cop 2. We'll see what it says. It came out in 1984. 
for the holiday season. Wow, it's released by distributed by Paramount. Just 1984. I'm way off. No wonder I never saw this movie. Uh, it's 105 minutes long, so it is a quick one. I mean, comparatively now, 13 million to make made a 316 million. So I could be right. Uh, 234 in North America, and it was the highest grossing film released in 1984. And that would make sense if I saw it in 84 and it was still in the movie theater in 85. Uh, let's see. It was nominated for Favorite Motion Picture, People's Choice Awards, uh, Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, Academy Award for Best Screenplay. It was a blockbuster. Okay, so yeah, let's see. The plot, it goes, this is from Wikipedia. Then he meets up with his buddy, Mickey Tandino. Oh, then uh, he ended up working, oh yeah, for Jenny Summers. Uh, shows him some German bear bonds. He wonders how he got him, but chooses not to question him. Oh yeah, they go to a bar, then they go to the big far, big bank in the sky. Uh, Axel asks for permission to look into it, but Inspector Todd says don't worry about it. Uh, so then he says he's going to take a vacation. Oh, because it happened in Detroit, of course, yeah. He finds Jenny working in an art gallery, learns Mickey's ties to Victor Maitland, the gallery's owner. Oh, he poses as a flower delivery person. And that's where he meets Victor Maitland. Uh, uh, that's where, and then that's where he meets uh, Andrew Bogomil and uh, Sergeant Taggart and Billy Rosewood. Billy Rosewood, yeah, that's another really great name. John Taggart, Lieutenant Bogomil. You know, they follow him. Taggart, uh, he uses a banana to trick them. Oh, no, first he gets food delivered uh, from room service. It doesn't say, uh, I don't know how he, like, uh, pulled off the, the, maybe just put everything on a credit card. Billy and Taggart do not get along with Axel first, but then they develop a mutual respect. Uh, oh, yeah, because they sell something else, uh Oh, because one of the things that's a contrast is that uh, that they try to make like uh, some of the problematic behavior they show is like a program to like that the Beverly Hills officers have to follow these rules uh, by the book, uh, and that they can't think for themselves, and that uh, Axel is trying to teach them, hey, you got to think for yourself and trust your instincts sometimes, uh, and loosen up. Uh, Okay, then, so they foil something, and then they say, wait a second, especially Taggart says, oh, wait, you're like, he says, oh, cop to cop now. Sorry, I was problematic, Uh, which is, well, that behavior was not okay. Okay, so then, then, yeah, that's when he sneaks in, he finds coffee grounds. uh, She says, okay, you know what you're smuggling when... uh, Oh, and that they're circumventing customs. Uh, so then again, he goes to Bogomil, uh, who Bogomil kind of buys into it. But then there's another person, Chief Hubbard, who uh, wants him out of town. Oh, yeah, he says something, something, uh, the buffet at uh, the brunch at the Beverly Hills Hilton or something. 
But then they say, okay, we got to go to Maitland's warehouse where there's a shipment. Uh, that's when they find the evidence. Uh, oh, then they, Maitland takes Jenny with him, uh, and they're going to deal with uh, Axel. So Axel and Jenny get caught by Maitland. Maitland's going to take Jenny, and Billy has to uh, save the day. Yeah, Taggart had given up, uh, but then uh, they come to it, and then that's when they figure it out at the end, and they get in. So I didn't miss too much. Yeah, then at the end, they say, uh, uh, Axel says, can you smooth things over with my boss? Uh, oh, Paul Reiser's in this movie, Jonathan Bank, uh uh, Damon Wayans is, uh, oh yeah, he, wow, yeah, well, that's funny. He's, he's, uh, he plays a small role. Ronson been shown. Uh, let's see, 1977, uh, was like when they first started pitching the movie. Uh, luckily it sounds like a couple of people they had lined up were, they were no, uh, no, wouldn't. <laughs> Definitely not uh, Eddie Murphy. I mean, famous actors, but only Eddie Murphy could have pulled this off, I think. It did receive critical acclaim upon its release. Uh, uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times said, uh, Eddie Murphy doing what he does best. Uh, I don't know. No one says that he had, like, range, though. I mean, they say, oh, yeah, he's fast-talking, hip, shrewd. Uh, Eddie Murphy exudes a kind of cheeky, cocky charm that's been missing from the screen since Cagney was a pup. Uh, uh, Axel became Murphy's signature role. Oh, yeah, other people say, yeah, this was a flawless masterpiece. Uh, Though some people said, uh, someone from the National Review said it was a contemptible film. It's got an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, came out in the holidays at 84. It was in first place. It made $15 million in the first five days. Uh, and it stayed at number one for 13 consecutive weeks. Returned to number one in its 15th week. Uh, and tied uh, Tootsie for the most weeks at number one. So, yeah, 15 weeks is like half a year. That's at number one. Uh, so it could have been in the uh, second-run theater after it came out uh, for almost a year. And, yeah, the soundtrack had, uh, like, this instrumental song that's really popular, Axel F uh, for Axel Foley. That was by Harold Faltermeyer. Uh, and then Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters, which was, holy cow, that was a, like a, an unbelievable song. And I think that's it, Legacy. Let's see what it says about Legacy. Oh, it, it was two sequels. I don't remember Beverly Hills Cop 3. Uh, Reinhold was in both movies. The second film had mixed reviews, but was successful in the box office. Uh, the third film, neither critically or commercially successful. Uh, Sean Ryan pitched a pilot in 2013 uh, with uh, Axel Foley's son, but it was not picked up. Uh, Brandon T. Jackson. 
And in 2019, uh, Netflix licensed an option to, for a fourth sequel. So we'll see if that happens. That would be interesting. I mean, I think without Eddie Murphy, it's really tough for me uh, to think about it. But, yeah, so that's a little bit about a movie I barely remember. Let me just, before I uh, I'll slow it down even more, before I let you go, I'll just... Uh, check the entry for the other two plots i know the first plot or this of the first uh like the first uh, second movie whatever you call the first sequel was uh a uh like that something like who's whoever was the lieutenant uh he gets uh gone he gets he has to go to turn in a bear bond but i don't know what else is there uh uh, it was uh, 1987, so I still didn't see this either in the theater. Uh, directed by Tony Scott. Uh, it has a pretty sweet poster at Sunset. Uh, let's see if anybody else is in it. Reinhold, Ronnie Cox, John Aston, uh, Dean Stockwell, Paul Reiser. Oh, Paul Reiser's like his partner, I think, uh, in Detroit. Made less movie than the first film, uh, but still was successful. 157. Oh, there's, yeah, there's a, like, uh, oh, like, uh, oh, wait, doesn't this have, uh, is this the same movie? Yeah, Bridget Nielsen's in it. Okay, so I remember this one. Uh, it's like a, a couple mysteries within a mystery. So, so it wasn't, uh, yeah, it, it kind of, so I guess kind of, uh, I kind of remember it, uh, Dean Stockwell. Um, and then let's see, I don't remember Beverly Hills 3 at all. So Beverly Hills Cop 3 came out in 1994, so it's a pretty long break. Uh, it was directed by John Landis, uh, they had worked together. Uh, let's see what we say. Axel Foley returns to Beverly Hills. Counterfeiters this time, who had uh, dealt with his boss. Uh, he teams up with Billy Rosewood. They go to a, a amusement park known as Wonder World. He has a lot of cameos, uh, including Robert B. Sherman, Arthur Hiller, John Singleton, Joe Dante. Barbet, Schroeder, Peter Madak, uh, Ray Harryhausen, and George Lucas. And uh, let's see, a plot, uh, let's see. Yeah, oh, they go, yeah, you know, same kind of thing. They're on the trail. So maybe that's another thing that didn't work. I don't know. But so anyway, the first movie meant a lot to me, and it still does. And uh, so I wanted to talk about it. Uh, thanks so much, and good night. All right, everybody, Scoot's here, and uh, this will be interesting. And uh, the, so I realized today, uh, well, like over the weekend and then today, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of keeping an idea of like what I'm going to record during the week for the Tuesday, the random style episodes, you know, that we have a couple different styles we do. And I thought of one thing that or a couple of things we'll be covering uh, in the next year or so. But I said, wait a second. Um, so I thought, of, like I said, we've covered a lot of the seminal movies of my childhood. 
And in my like middle school, like uh, late grammar, elementary school, middle school, and high school and beyond years, and some formative movie going experiences. I don't know if we've covered them all, but we covered uh, uh, the Roger Moore James Bond movie with Grace Jones and Tanya Roberts and Christopher Walken, A View to a Bridge uh, with Zeppelin. And while that wasn't a beloved, that was just an important movie for me, I think it was the first James Bond movie I saw in a theater. And I believe we've covered uh, Goonies and Back to the Future. Those, all three of those movies were, were related to a period in my life when I still played with toys. But when I became aware, that was just a big summer of movie going for me. And, uh, where I became aware that movies were made, that there were people that worked on movies. And it wouldn't be, it would follow up with another big summer, which maybe we'll talk about because I don't think we've covered any of those movies. Then another big movie going experience for me was Beetlejuice. Another, you know, memory, movie memory I had that we covered was uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And we've covered Beverly Hills Cop and uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Dustbusters. So all really important experiences for me. But the foundation was built on the first, uh, there's three movies, the first three movies that I'm aware that I went to the movie theater and saw. Two of which were animated movies, The Sword in the Stone and uh, The Fox and the Hound. Which is interesting that they both their titles are similar in a sense. And then this movie, which I should have total recall of, but I don't think I have, and that is the first uh, the first Star Wars movie I ever saw. And I don't know if it, which episode it is. Episode six, I guess. Star Wars episode six. Why do I always want to say it's episode three? Three, four, five. Maybe it's five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I think it's episode six, and it's called Return of the Jedi. And I think it'd be interesting for me to do a tale of the tape about that. But I, like, uh, um, I guess I'll talk a little bit more about uh, my like going to the movie. I've talked about going to the movie before, even in the Beetlejuice one. And I can remember, no, I think this is like a kind of an idea of the power of Star Wars. So in this period of time in the 80s was that I play, well, I don't know what year Raiders or what is this movie called? Empire? No. Uh, Ewoks Make a Village? No, it's called uh, Return of the Jedi. Okay. Uh, I can't even remember that. Or Jedi, as it may be called. Uh, But so... I played with Star Wars toys, but I never saw Star Wars movies until Return of the Jedi. And I'm not even sure if this was on the first or the second run of Return of the Jedi. And this may be my imagination, but I thought that Star Wars A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back were so popular that they even had revivals before the third movie came out. Like, so whatever they came out... Then it came out again. Then Empire Strikes Back came out. And then Empire Strikes Back came out again. And then Return of the Jedi came out. Not, and I'm not talking about reprints or anything. 
but I'm not sure if that happened or not. But it, like I can remember seeing, especially Empire Strikes Back, I can remember seeing the commercials on TV, all the cross promotions, and then the toys, but not being able to see the movie. Because I don't know, they said, "Well, you're just too impressionable and young. We don't need you go going. You can't go into. We don't need you going trying to be go a long time ago and far, far away. You're already far, far away anyway." And, you know, we don't, we don't need to, you know, we don't need this, uh, these, I don't know, I guess it's like just too intense. Plus there's six kids in my family. I would have been old enough. And I don't know if my father or mother was interesting is I saw a lot of Star Trek movies with my father. Again, not on the first run, but on the, um, at a historical theater. So... I don't know. Maybe I don't know if I ever talked about that, but I, you know, I'll talk about it another time, maybe. So at some point, Return of the Jedi came out, and my father decided that at least my brother Carl and I, and maybe my sister Sheila, were at a place where we could go see this movie. And again, I, my expectations were not based on reality. I had, I thought, I guess I had been to two movies, so I don't know why I thought this, but I thought that they would give away free toys or they would have a toy store. And in some sense, I don't want to brag, but I guess I was a visionary. I thought they would have a pop-up toy store selling. Just I thought they'd be steeply discounted because you paid for the movie, uh, or they would just give you a free action figure. But if they would have had a pop-up toy store at the movie theater, they would have made even more money. So, not to give anybody an idea, because I don't know if any other movies are driving that kind of toy purchasing. I mean, I will say, I guess nowadays people do, like, like it would be hard to track, and people would just keep the boxes and sell them on eBay. But I said, well, you know, if you give away a troll doll at one of those movies with every ticket, that would be pretty fun. So, I don't know. I guess it's like I wouldn't need the kid behind me saying, Hello, could you comb my hair? I'm a troll. I'm behind you. I say, I'm trying to watch Trolls, uh, you know, Throwback City or whatever the next. I don't know. I haven't seen any of those movies. Probably would. I don't have anything against them. I think it's uh, Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick. I don't know. Is that who's in those movies? Okay, but so... So when I went to Star Wars, I was like trying to already plan out. I know they had, like, I didn't know anything about the movie, but I'd seen the ad. So I know they had the Grammarian Guard. And I probably wrote my brother in with him and said, well, what toy are you going to pick out for the movie when they give away the free toys? And I wanted the Grammarian Guard. And I don't know if my brother imaginarily picked out, but it ended up there was no free toys or toys for sale at the movie theater. And I have no idea what movie theater we went to, because whenever I think about it, and I'm like, oh, that's probably the movie theater. Like, I picture this actual movie theater that uh, we didn't really go to the movies at. The same movie theater, like, out in the suburbs of Syracuse, where most of the movies I saw, well, maybe Cam- Camillus Mall would have been where I saw the most of the movies. Anyway... Where was I? Interesting stuff here. Well, boy, or is this interesting stuff? So let's see. Okay, so yeah, let's cover the movie. I'm trying to think of any other like memories I have. Uh, just wanted wanted to see the movie. So we were probably pretty excited. 
I don't, other than being disappointed that you didn't get a free, I mean, I remember really enjoying the movie and the experience, but I don't remember, and I also remember the letdown because I had unrealistic expectations of getting a free toy or trying to talk my dad into buying a discounted toy. Just an action figure, that's all I was asking for. I wasn't asking for like a, uh, you know, play set or anything. But at this point, I understand how the world works. So, okay, I, I accept it. So, uh, what is the movie called again? Return of the Jedi, which is pretty important. So, here's what, what I know. And, and again, you might say, Scoots, come on. There's no way you can't remember how this movie goes or the major plot points. And I say, do you want to bet? Because I bet you I cannot remember because I can't remember. So at first I thought it opened on the Ewa, on the moon of Endor. But now I realize, I said, no, it couldn't have started there. Because why? what are they doing there and why? So I said, you're right. Where does it begin? And I said, well, where did the last movie end? And I said, with Orlando Double Cross. Uh, and they said, okay. So that's where it ended. Uh, and like they they get like... Uh, Han was uh, uh, placed uh, like in a state of suspended animation, and uh, Luke was uh, had dealt with some of his father issues, which caused great emotional, you know, impact on him. But he was rescued by, I think, by Lando, Leia, C three PO, R two D two, and Chewbacca. And I guess Lando had parlayed that. So in some sense, like, we can't hold anything against Lando. Because really, he said, this is the best I could do. I didn't really have a choice. You know, they got here before you did. That's in the other movie, though. So it opens. um, I'm pretty sure this is how it opens. And actually, when you think about the opening, at least, and you think about genres in films, you say, well, this is interesting uh, because, and I didn't look at it this way, but it's a bit of a, like a, like a, like a caper style heist type uh, setup. But it, it already starts, the beginning of the movie starts when that has already been implemented. And I say, wow, like, I really like those choices because... It has a lot more impact than if you showed the planning of it. They say, okay, that's not a way to start a movie That's that this is just going to be a segment of. Um, but then you say, well, okay, then what purpose? Well, that's where we left off. It's like a Saturday morning serial, so you need this sequence. And I say, well, it's a cool sequence. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying... Uh, and it says in like the overall arching plot of the three movies, how does it fit in there? And I say, okay, well, I guess one, it demonstrates where Luke is and his progression. So you say, okay, you're right about that. That's just impressive. And then it kind of tells the story of Han and Leia. Okay, fair enough. And then something happens, but you don't remember. Like, are you or are you just buying time because you don't know what? And I say, no, I know what happened. I'm pretty sure here's how it happens. And it reminds me of Wizard of Oz as well. There may or may not be. I think what happens is, huh? And no, I don't know. Like, I think maybe, um, 
do uh, C-3PO, is it open with C-3PO and R2-D2 and they go to the door and that's like kind of the, um, maybe that is what happens. Interesting. So this is what I think happens. I guess I, I thought something else happened, but I said, wait a second, that doesn't answer all my questions. So now I think what may have happened is, so R2-D2 and C-3PO show up at the desert Tatooine, which we've seen a lot of, uh, maybe, out somewhere outside of Moss Eisley Spaceport. And we go there, and we're at the hut of the palace of Jabba the Hutt. Oh, you know what? They start off with a, the crawl that fills you in. So they probably the crawl. The movie said, "Okay, chapter one, two, three, six: Return of the Jedi." Uh, you know, Star War. The, the Empire's working on. I don't know if I read this, but it, like it confused me later. But I think they were working on a new Death Star. Rebel Alliance has been trying to get, you know, scattered across the galaxy. Uh, Luke Skywalker hints, but, you know, but somewhere the the crime lord, Jabba the Hutt, uh, you know, what'll happen next? Just something like that. Darth Vader is at the height of his powers with the Emperor Palpatine. And soon, you know, they have a crushing grip. It won't be long till they have a crushing grip on the galaxy. So that didn't help us. But so I think R2D, so it opens with maybe some desert shots. And then let's just say, let's just say this happens. In my mind, it did. It didn't, though, but I'm trying to remember. They show up at uh, the, uh, what do you call that thing? Jabba's Palace. And uh, like very much like the Wizard of Oz, something asks them, what do you want? And they say, we're here to see Lord Jabba or whatever, Lord Hutt's. And then, just like C-3PO says, how rude, I don't appreciate your tone. Because it has, like, this camera eye. And then it says, eventually they say something. They said, let us in, uh, because, you know, we're, we're very, very valuable. And we could be, va- you know, we've been gifted to the Lord of Jabba. So I think they go in, and we go into Jabba's palace. Jabba's got rock and band and uh, eats a lot of stuff. He's got uh, what? What do you call those? Uh, sick, like like something that laughs at all his jokes. The pets. He's got people that work for him. And he, you can see that Jabba uh, lives in the world of vice. Uh, and at some point, we see Princess Leia working undercover. And I don't know how long it takes to reveal that also. And this was one of the cooler action figures is that Lando Calrissian is also working undercover. So I think that's slowly revealed. And C-3PO says, basically, I'm here to work for you. I think a gift from uh, Luke Skywalker or something or maybe a trade. I can't remember, you know, to, to, because your majesty or whatever. And then I think there's a sequence that goes by and maybe... R2 is like serving drinks and C-3PO is like has to run as a protocol droid, can speak whatever billion languages. And we saw this palace at the end of the second season of Mandalorian, which was cool because it was a similar sequence. Uh, 
Then, and we, oh, we see the Grimorian guard who are like uh, the, the guards of, Jab, you know, Jabba's tough guys. Then at some point we get this mysterious um, uh, sound effects and doors opening. And then in comes Cloaked, just like I guess is similar to the end of the second season of Mandalorian. Uh, Luke Skywalker, Cloaked Undercover. So at some point, the man. Oh, here's a spoiler. At some point, Mandalorian and uh, or uh, oh no, no, this has been the few. Wait a second. I'm confused about the timelines now. Because at the end of the Mandalorian, it's a younger Luke Skywalker, younger than the Return of the Jedi Skywalker, right? Is that correct, or am I way off, or is it is Luke Skywalker older? Oh yeah, it takes place. This takes place. Mandalorian takes place after Return of the Jedi. Okay, so that was just my mistake uh, among many. Okay, that solves that. So okay, so Jabba's having a party or whatever. That's all you know. Jabba, Jabba's you know putting on vice. Then this cloaked figure shows up and uh, has no trouble with all Jabba's henchmen and says, "Hey, I'm here to." Uh, I'm here for Han Solo and my droid, you know, my droids and all that. Uh, and they, the Jabba says, you, you know, your tricks won't work on me because I'm too smart. And Luke says, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty tough. So, you know, what's, and then Jabba has a secret door where Luke goes to visit Jabba's pet, who is, uh, Who's like this this uh, dog that keeps drooling? And it's Jabba says if you can't you know if you don't want to be covered in drool because I heard that grosses you out. And I think this was a stop motion sequence. So then we have and I, again I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but we have Luke uh, dealing with uh, with the, the in the stop motion sequence dealing with the. Uh, uh, the the dog and trying to get the dog to just say hey if they give the dog you know you just got to brush the dog's teeth really. So Luke figures out if he brushes the dog's teeth the dog will stop drooling problem solved but it takes a while. Now looking back on it now I say did Luke know this was going to happen because of something that happens later but I don't know so but also Luke's trapped. Uh, because it's a secret door. Meanwhile, Lando goes and uh, tries to rescue uh, Han Solo. Like, I don't know if he, I guess he defrosts him. And Chewie's down there too. Or is Chewie, yeah, I think, I can't remember if Chewie's with him or not. Because Chewie's pretty mad at Lando. But whatever, he defrosts Han but Han can't see because it takes a while for your eyesight to come back. So that happens, and they get discovered. So they get caught too. Now I don't think Princess Princess Leia got discovered though, so she's still undercover, I believe. But I could—I mean, I've been wrong about everything else. So then Java says, "Okay, I got a better idea for for all these, uh, like all these punks." Now, it could be that Luke, uh, could be that Lando's still undercover, though, and he doesn't get caught. I can't remember. 
I'm feeling like Lando is still undercover at this point. So maybe um, it's just Luke had rescued uh, Han and Chewie. So I don't know. But th- those let's just say those three are busted. Everybody else is still undercover. So they say, okay, we're going to take you out to the desert to the Sarlacc, uh, which it turns out the Sarlacc, you know, dealt with the Krayt Dragon. The Krayt Dragon dealt with the Sarlacc at some point, I think, because I I think that's how um, uh, Justified got the... uh, his arm, Boba Fett's armor, but anyway, not important yet. So they go out there, they're on these like skiffs, but Jabba has this giant party barge. Now you could get this, I don't know if you could get the party barge, but you could definitely, one of my, at least somebody I played with uh, had that skiff, which was cool. And it's kind of like a pirate movie at this point. Uh, so that Luke has to walk the plank and they're like, they're going to make Han and Luke walk the planks, uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I believe all that stuff happened. So then uh, they're on the skiff. Boba Fett's there watching over because Boba Fett was the one with Darth Vader, that one of the people with Darth Vader that busted Han Solo. So they take him out, and they're going to make him walk to the plank and uh, meet this uh, Sarlacc, uh, a pit of Sarlaccian pit or something. And Jabba says, oh, boy, is this, you know, this thing, you know, this is exactly what uh, you deserve. They're probably bet- making bets on it. Great action sequence. I'm not doing it justice, obviously. But Luke had already thought of this or something because he has, uh, he has like his uh, lightsaber inside of, uh, what do you call that thing? What's that thing called? Uh, R2-D2. So R2-D2 at some point throws Luke his lightsaber. He does a bunch. You see over these sequences of how he's become progressed as a Jedi. And his powers increased. His abilities have increased. Um, and so Luke does a bunch of moves. Uh, and also, I think even in this scene, we see that Luke has become somewhat mechanic. Like uh, he's become a little bit of a cyborg. Meanwhile, there's like one sequence where Han can't see and he has to free Chewie or Lando. Uh, then uh, Boba Fett and a couple other people go and visit the Sarlacc. Uh, so that was like we thought that was it for Boba Fett. But a lot of good action. And C-3 probably runs around talking too much. And Princess Leia deals with Boba or uh, Jabba. I don't know. I felt like that was back in the back at the palace, but maybe it happened on the uh, the barge. I wonder if El Barge was on the barge. But so whatever they get away. Basically, spoiler: they get away. Now I'm not ex- not exactly sure what happens next. <laughs> Surprise! But I think they all get out. Uh, they must have parked somewhere nearby. Somehow Lando pulled all this off. So, so I don't know how many years this took, this deep cover, because Lando was under in deep cover, so was Leia. But I guess some somewhere they had the Millennium Falcon and Millennium Falcon and uh, Luke's X-Wing parked uh, within the region. 
And I think maybe they cover this by phone call or something. But Luke says, I got to go to Dagobah. I got to go to the Dagobah system with R2. Got somebody I got to deal with. Uh, and they say, okay, we got to go meet with Admiral Akbar and everybody else that knows what they're doing. And they say, okay, to talk to you. We'll meet up with you at some point in the future. So they go. So. Then the sequence splits. So if we follow Millennium Falcon, we have uh, Lando Calrissian, Han Solo, uh, Princess Leia, Leia Organa, C-3PO, and Chewbacca. I'm pretty sure this is when Admiral Akbar is still functioning as the Admiral, but it could be, I think so. So they go and they say, okay, they say the, the Death Star is almost fully operational. Maybe it is, even is operational. Now, I think as a kid, even though they said it multiple times that it was a, they were building a second Death Star, I still kept thinking, is this a old Death Star just got damaged and they're repairing it? And I'm not even positive, but I think it was a new Death Star. Which I mean, again, I'm sure there's been there's been comedy and even clerks, but even in the season of Mandalorian, I mean that's a lot of uh, investment. I remember the movie Contact uh, with Jodie Foster, and that movie had a similar but Earth-based premise about like investing all this money in a spaceship. Uh, but at least they kind of explained, oh, no, like this is a spoiler. But they said, okay, we also are building a second one secretly in case this one didn't work out. So I don't know if that's how the, the Death Star worked. But anyway, they say, yeah, we're, they're building this Death Star. But they learn, you know, while they're building it, it's covered by this shield that's based on this moon on Endor. So we can't get to it to deal with it uh, unless somebody goes, it's this powerful shield. you got to be on the planet to get rid of the shield. So they say, okay, well, Han Solo and Princess Leia and Lando say, well, was Lando there? I think Lando, I don't think, I think Lando comes in later because Lando has his own sidekick. Now that's what I'd like to see, a standalone Donald Glover Lando movie. Or TV show, uh, or whatever program, you know, starring Donald Glover, directed by Donald Glover. But uh, so I don't know. So because I say, well, who's that dude? He was a gill-based being. Or what was Lando? I don't know. He couldn't do. Maybe he could do it. Uh, let's see. What was what was Land, Where was Lando? I mean, how did Lando become head of Bespin? I'd like to know that too. Okay, but so back to wherever I was now. Where am I? Okay, so that that's Endor. That's the moon, forest moon, end of Endor, or the forest moon and Endor, forest moon. That's where the shield is. That's protecting, and it's going to be fully operational and have a view of like, uh, I don't know, the central, you know, central, uh, wherever Admiral Akbar is based. But Admiral Akbar is actually in the. I don't know, wherever the Rebel Alliance is, they can't let this thing go fully operational. But, you know, the Empire at this point is at full strength. Uh, Also, at some point, I don't know if it's during this movie, I guess it is, because Luke's realized that Darth Vader's his father, 
uh, Darth, we, we do learn that Leia is Luke's sister and uh, the daughter of Darth Vader. That's revealed at some point during this film. Okay, so they say, yeah, we'll lead the team going to, uh, we'll land on Endor undercover. We're going to wear camouflage and stuff. And then we'll go deal with these. Uh, we'll break into the place to shield. We'll try to time it, shut the shield down. Meanwhile, Luke returns um, to Dagobah, the Dagobah system. And I think some of this was in the Timothy's, well, it's Timothy's on books. Um, maybe I read some of these Star Wars books, uh, the other than those. But Luke returns to Dagobah's system, ostensibly to complete his training that he abandoned in the last movie. And I can't remember what Yoda, Yoda says, but Yoda says, you know, basically, let's have some soup and tea and talk about it. Uh, you know, try, you must, uh, patience, you know, the grip, you know, tries to give him, he's trying to tell him the truth, the truth teller. I, I don't know. I think he was more accepting the fact Luke wasn't there. And maybe he trains more. Maybe he did all his training in uh, Return of the Jedi. I mean, uh, Empire Strikes Back. I'm not sure, you know, when he's riding around in his back and all that stuff. Uh, but so, you know, Luke returns to talk to the teacher. I think in this movie is when he has to go into the cave, uh, and he goes in the cave. And again, this Ray did this in a different part. Uh, I guess she did it in that blowhole, the Nakulele blowhole, and when she went down there. But it's I guess it has to do with the Force or Jedi stuff that you go to this like place where you uh, where you have you you kiss mysticism in some sense, you know. Or maybe you're kissed by the mysticism. And so Luke goes in there and kind of shows you, oh, because the one thing about being a Jedi is, like, uh, you can't be consumed by your fears. So, like, you have to, um, you can't be consumed by wanting what you want or wanting to be released from your fears totally. Or, and also you can't turn to anger and hate. So most, for the most part, good, good stuff. And I think this cave is supposed to train you or whatever, show you. But I guess that would have been in the other movie because it shows Luke uh, inside Darth Vader and that freaks Luke out. So that probably did happen in Empire Strikes Back. So I don't know if he goes to the cave in this movie. Now, the Yoda from the Yoda toy from Return of the Jedi, I, I had. Now, it's definitely, it had a, the cool things about the Yoda toy was Yoda had a pet that he wore around his neck, he had his cane. And he had a cloth robe, all of which were very easy to lose. Uh, so you'd lose the pet first or the cane first, then the pet, and then hopefully the robe would stay on. So I have no idea what happens on Dagobah other than that at some point Yoda says, listen, buddy, it's been great, but I got to lie down and go to the big, you know, go to the big uh uh, big macaroon or macaroon in the sky and, uh, you know, meet up with, uh, Obi-Wan and, uh, maybe Luke talks to Obi-Wan. I don't know, but he says, put a blanket on me and, uh, come for me, Luke. Uh, and Luke says, oh boy, that's tough stuff. So, 
Huh. And then I don't know what happens to Luke after it. Uh, so I guess I'm missing some stuff. So hopefully I'll remember that. And now it makes sense why we had such a big sequence at Jabba's Palace, like that two, two kind of two, two different good action sequences. Because otherwise I wouldn't have remembered anything. So now we're back on the forest moon of Endor. And we got a team there, right? We got, uh, now I don't know if they like, uh, didn't land in the right place or what their plan was. I can't remember any of that. Other than that, they have to disable the shields, uh, so they're so it's Leia, Han, Chewie, everybody else. So they're supposed to be running undercover, and this is again a new effect sequence, great sound design. But at some point, the, the um, stormtroopers, or these were called, these were something else, uh, scout troopers, they were called. They rode these things called speeder bikes. Which again we get to see in the Mandalorian, but at this time, this these effects are really uh, top of the line, and in some sense, probably still stand the test of time against some of the other like because uh, I don't know if it's a balanced practical beautiful forest. I mean, you're talking like Northern California redwood forest. If you ever want to relive it, uh, like it's not an easy hike, but you could do the one way hike. Uh, it goes from uh, it's called the Steep Ravine Trail. It goes from Mount Tam down to Stinson Beach. It does take it's a pretty long hike, but if you do it one way, you could get a taste of, uh, and that way you're going downhill, you really get a taste for Endor. But so, uh, what else do we need to know? So, um, so okay, so Leia and Han... I don't know about Chewie, where Chewie or everybody else is. C-3PO's with them. But so they get into chases with these speeder bikes. I want to say Luke was there at this point. but Because, yeah, Luke was there at some point. Because he had to have a face-off with them. Maybe he wasn't. Uh, no, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Anyway. Um... Yeah, cause me, I don't know. So who knows what happened to Luke? I, I guess I thought I remembered. But Hans, also Darth Vader knows. he He's visiting to do an inspection or talk to the Emperor. Maybe they just were living there. Because you say, why not? It's a powerful space station. It's protected, you know, by a, by a shield on a, you know, a moon that we didn't even investigate everything on the moon. But, you know, good enough. But so they deal with these speeder bikes, right? And uh, that was a really cool sequence. I do remember the front of a speeder bike getting cut off that I thought was by a lightsaber, but maybe I'm wrong. But so whatever. I don't. I don't. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's was it Luke, Leia, and Han? Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't know. But so it's cool. Cool action sequence. Pretty sure Luke wasn't there, but maybe he was. Uh, and I just don't remember it. And then I don't know why. Maybe there was some other. Did they have to go on any other adventures before they got to the end of Moon of Endor? Mm, I don't know. But, so whatever. They end up, they deal with the speeder bikes. I think one person got away. At some point, they're all split up. It took, takes them a while. They eventually all get back together. Then they're looking and uh, like... Uh, Chewbacca tries to grab something. They get caught in a net. Uh, 
And the next thing they know, they're with the Ewoks. Uh, and uh, the Ewoks, this is their home home world, this uh, moon. And so uh, they say, who are these people? We don't like them. Uh, and they, they look a lot like these, uh, the Empire, which is causing us trouble. So I think they're going to deal with them. There's a communication barrier. But then they realize they have some belief system where C-3PO has like a godlike status to them. Okay, but Luke is there. So uh, so I guess Luke was there the whole time. So I was wrong about that for sure. So maybe there was some sequence. Uh, maybe there's just like Luke said, I'll meet you at Endor or whatever. Do find my friends, and I'm going to go to Dagobah, then I'll meet up with you. Because, yeah, so the, anyway, so then they think C-3PO is a god. Luke uses the Force to play that up. Uh, so he says, free my friends, and uh, then they they start, they start realize the Ewoks are actually, de- like, dealing in a big, you know, they're constantly getting harassed by the Empire, and they're way outnumbered, so they say, "Okay, let's work together to deal with these empire because we got to get to this uh, this bunker where the shields operated out of." So um, interesting, and so yeah, and I don't know. So then they come up with a plan. The plan is really cool. And they enact the plan. So they say, "Okay, we're going to capture this bunker." And we're going to do it together. But, and basically, like, you know, it's like one of those ones, it's a roller coaster, right? They do all this cool stuff. They use more, uh, like, non traditional, like, they use traditional ways to deal with these, uh, at at walkers, which were new, which, like, were already, or maybe there was a couple at at walkers in other movies, but they're, like, two legged. Oh no! So they're not at at dt atsts or something, but they go have all this battle, and then it seems like they all is one. They finally get to the. They end up getting separated, and I think like Leia gets to the, uh, and a couple other people get to the um, the blast doors, and they're trying to break the code, but they can't break the code to get the door open. Then they think all is lost, but really that uh, Han and Chewie, you know, were were like, uh, I don't know, everything works out. Meanwhile, I'm pretty sure Luke um, just flies up to the, uh, what do you call it, the the Death Star, and Darth Vader's like, let that ship land, my son's coming to meet me or something. So I guess my memories are, like, worse than terrible about this. Uh, so I'm pretty sure... Okay, so the battle goes on. I'm trying to think of anything else I remember about the battle. But uh, basically, because I'm saying, okay, they still did everything, but they still can't get in. How do they get into the bunker? But I guess I don't know. So... They're trying to do that, but they got to time it like a lot of these movies, like with these shields. Uh, the whole uh, rebel force is coming out of hyperspace right at this one time. I guess Luke's already on the ship, and maybe that was after the shield went down. 
and I'm pretty sure Admiral Akbar is there because uh, he says, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, um, you know, like he's, when's the shield coming down? Maybe they're already there and they say, you got to hurry up with the shield. Uh, now, meanwhile, Luke's on there, right? Now, this is a big s- sequence, especially for a kid, because this was like serious intensity. And my dad, after the movie, wanted to talk a lot about the Ewoks and this, like, uh, his generation and kind of like where, where that fit in. But I guess as a kid, I, I was kind of struck by this. Uh, so Luke, I think, goes and says, uh, like, uh, Hey, you know, I got to deal with like, uh, like, uh, Hey dad, he says, yeah, let's talk. Uh, and Luke says, uh, um, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, I work for the emperor. What if we just come to cut the emperor out, out of this? So let's go meet with him, but let's just get rid of him. And you and I can like rule the galaxy together. Like I said, last time. And Luke says, nah, I'm not interested in that. He goes, well, let's just go talk to the governor. And, or maybe they, no, I guess like, uh, they go like, uh, maybe there's like different pauses and they're talking while they're, uh, having lightsaber interactions. But yeah, so I guess they're having like lightsaber interactions the whole time. And then they end up in the emperor's like throne room and there's all this drama and Luke ends up besting Darth Vader. And the Emperor's watching the whole time. And even Vader's like, come on, we could take the Emperor out. And then the Emperor's like trying to encourage exactly what Yoda warned him about. You know, react, don't be, you know, don't, don't think it out or, you know, feel your feelings and then try to self-soothe and then decide. Just make a dis- rash decision based on your strong, intense feelings. And so he keeps trying to encourage Luke to do that, which would be adios Darth Vader. Now, and then Luke says, no, 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 that's not how it goes. Uh, and so then the emperor gets really mad. He has like lightning fig- fingers. He's like kind of like a sorcerer for like, for sure. And he uses lightning fingers on Luke. Uh, and, uh, then Darth Vader makes a choice. Uh, he sees Luke. Luke had let him go. Um, so then he goes against the Emperor. Toss it. Now, I guess it didn't work out. I don't know how what the, how the Emperor pulled that off, but I wasn't paying. You know, I didn't. I don't know anything. But he tosses the Emperor. But you can't really toss somebody while they're shooting lightning bolts because then you get lightning bolted yourself. Uh, so he says, oh, boy, Luke, uh, I'm totally in rough shape. Uh, let me see your face. Like, why don't you kiss my face or something or touch my cheek uh, so I can see with my own eyes you're my son. And it really is a heartfelt moment. For the kid, it was like the effects were like a little bit intense. Uh, so I said, oh, boy. Uh, but, I mean, this was before those other movies got made. So you get to see Darth Vader for the first time, which I think, I guess, was like a key progression. That's like, oh, this is a human being beneath all this armor, and he's someone's daddy. I guess he was never anybody's daddy, though. He was just like, uh, 
he's he's still a little boy. I mean, I guess that's what we learned through the whole uh, arc. And Luke holds him, and I think he even takes him. Now, meanwhile, the shield is down, but things, of course, still aren't going easy. And I don't know if they had to do the same thing last time. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know if Luke has anything to do with it or anybody else. Because I don't know, that's a lot to put on Luke if he had to get off and then go do something. But I'm pretty sure that at the last second, Lando and his gill buddy come in and they're spinning around. And uh, But I think that also happened in the first movie, but it was Luke or Han. But anyway, Lando comes. I think Lando's the one who takes out the Death Star. But maybe Luke does something on board. I don't remember. Then everybody gets away. And then uh, it has to get all put back together, which actually they made it, did accomplish, especially to the little kids. So then they just have a party with the Ewoks. And the Ewoks are super cute. You know, they're, I think they're Henson creations. So they are popular with little kids, but they didn't really fit so much with the, um, kind of cold technology of Star Wars. And so I don't know how well it fit for playing, like with your own play acting or your own creations. I mean, I never, I mean, I liked the Ewoks, but I didn't have a lot of Ewok toys. Anyway, so the Ewoks have a big party. They say goodbye to Darth Vader at the party. Luke tells Leia that he's his sister. Her hair's down and everything. Then Leia says, Han says, well, I guess you're going to marry Luke, huh? Or whatever, something like that. She goes, no, he's my brother. I love you. And he goes, oh, I love you too. So they say, oh, boy, that's tied up nicely. Then we see Luke's dad, Anakin Skywalker, technically, old Annie. You want to know backstory, watch the Annie musical from Starkid. And then um, what else happens? So then, oh, then we see Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Annie Skywalker all together. They made amends somehow. I mean, maybe in the other universe it's easier to make amends or whatever. It goes quicker. Where you have total force knowledge, you say, oh, well, people make mistakes. Uh, so they all do that. And then um, I think that's it. Everybody says, well, this is great. And then it flashes. Uh, and in some sense, you said, okay, that was it. That's too bad the movies are over. I mean, for me, I could still have an opportunity to go back eventually and see the first two movies. Um, but yeah, I guess that's what I remember from Return of the Jedi, which is not, a uh, I would not say it's super accurate, but, uh, yeah, that's what I, that's the tale of the tape in my mind of Return of the Jedi. Uh, thanks everybody and good night. All right. I want to thank everybody that, uh, support.